How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three milkheads telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what's going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm another one of your hosts, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Today's discussion begins with Mary Alice Young, a seemingly perfect housewife who commits suicide, fearing that a dark secret involving her, her husband, and their son would be exposed. Mary's closest friends, Susan, Lynette, Bree, and Gabrielle, who all live on Wisteria Lane, try to find out the reason for her suicide while trying to deal with the problems of their personal lives and i think i watched the wrong thing <laughs> i think you watched Whoa. desperate housewives there Tom. okay i think a right. lot of <laughs> listeners just canceled like just stopped the thing like what am i listening to again <laughs> well uh stay tuned for what's bound to be another entertaining discussion as we continue our look in at the life and career of john waters in our third episode of our series titled divine filth todd's like i didn't know terry hatcher was a dreamlander <laughs> <laughs> wait is desperate living is that like a oh, desperate housewives. housewives he's doing a he's doing a, uh, he's doing a desperate housewives it. bit yeah okay. and now that, and now that we've explained it yeah 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 um uh, gary let's good. cross our fingers that he keeps that bit up the entire episode though damn it <laughs> <laughs> i had the thought it was like should i just pull a bunch of desperate housewives quotes <laughs> i wouldn't know because i've never i don't think i've watched a single minute of that of that Me tv neither. series <laughs> That's why it took me a second. Because not only is it something I've never watched, but it's also a show that is dated at this point, I would think. Well, yeah, and also I only knew because several times when I was like doing research for this episode and I typed in desperate to Google, the first thing that popped up as it like auto-populated was Desperate Housewives. So I just kept seeing it over and over. So it's in my brain. Yeah, So anyway, so the success of uh, Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble created new opportunities for several of the cast members of John Waters' regular ensemble, the Dreamlanders. Uh, Edith Massey, we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but Edith Massey started doing some public appearances, and she used her Baltimore thrift store as a sort of unofficial headquarters for her growing fan club. Divine, on the other hand, was using his newfound fame to craft an acting career for himself outside of John Waters' film. And in April of 1976, made his stage debut in the off-Broadway show Women Behind Bars, where he played a lesbian prison matron. Unfortunately, Divine's contractual obligations to that show meant that he had to reluctantly bow out of Waters' next film because the show was going on like a national tour, so it was going to be unavailable. So without his regular leading lady, Waters would have to find new leads for his next film, a movie that he called A Movie for Fucked Up Children, 
Taking the title from a lesbian newsletter that was published in Baltimore in the mid-1970s, Walter's next movie would be titled Desperate Living. It's contagious. It's outrageous. It's John Waters' Desperate Living, starring Hollywood sex goddess Liz Renee, Susan Lowe as androgynous Moe McHenry. You don't give me a sex change. I'll cut off your Peter and Mink Stoll as hysterical outpatient Peggy Gravel. Yes, they've all had a lot of desperate living. Follow the dead end road to Mortville, USA. Look around you. It's a village of idiots. Watch the most perverse sex acts ever brought to the screen. Desperate Living, featuring Edith Massey, the egg lady, as Queen Carlotta. Hi, stupid. Don't miss this rabid feast of cinema decadence from the creator of Pink Flamingos, John Waters' Desperate Living. It isn't very pretty. As long as you listen to Cinema Shock, you must always consider me your spoiler warning. And if you ever see me on the streets, fall to your knees and shout, I honor you, writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. I will not do that. Never. <laughs> let's let's talk for a second. I know we're going to talk about uh, specifically part of this later on in the filming stuff, but that intro, at least John Waters finally did something interesting with his interest. He doesn't have anybody working on these movies, but I swear to God, it always feels like there's like a 10 minute opening credits for these movies. And mm-hmm. I don't know why he keeps doing that. And, he just uh, likes, finally he just this likes time it. he did something. Yeah. You mean did something with the credits? Yeah, he did something like at least there was something to watch this time. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to like Pink Flamingos where it was just on like a shot of the trailer. Well, I mean, in in Female Trouble, he had an entire theme song playing that was about the movie, which I thought he was did, great. He did, add, he did add the theme song. Yeah, the theme, I mean, granted, there's right. nothing necessarily going on on screen other than people's names and stuff, but right. that theme song right. is enough to keep your attention, I think. But yeah, this time he had like a mapped out opening credit sequence. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to how they um, achieved that opening credit sequence here in a bit. Uh, so Waters, John Waters film without dead animals. You got to have those in there. <laughs> <laughs> got to throw, throw them in somewhere. Uh, Waters would later describe Desperate Living as, uh, quote, a monstrous fairy tale comedy dealing with mental anguish, penis envy, and political corruption. Its target audience is very neurotic adults with the mentalities of eight-year-olds. This this quote makes me feel so much better about myself, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait, because you're not a fan of the movie, so you feel that you don't have the mentality of an eight-year-old? Is that well, what you're saying? Well, it was just is so funny because, like, I, again, I mean, this kind of gets ahead of, you know, how we normally do our discussions, but, like, the whole time I was like, okay, who is who is this for? Who is this for? And as I started reading your notes earlier today, I was just like, oh, okay, well, all right. So it's not me. Okay, I got it. <laughs> I thought it was because you're dealing with a lot of mental anguish and penis envy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, uh, I I am uh, in a good good standing. I have a great relationship with my penis, Gary. Um, so there's there's no issues there, none at all. All right. Fair enough. He definitely says in the commentary he said a huge part of it for him was uh, just making fun of fascism. Yeah, which he, de- so he, de- just... he definitely pulls off. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Desperate Living is by far Waters' most ambitious film to date, and one that he couldn't simply film on the streets of Baltimore 
Uh, although it was budgeted at $65,000, which is more than twice what Female Trouble had cost, the sheer scope of Waters' script for this one meant that every single dollar would have to be stretched even further than usual, making for one of the most difficult shoots of his career so far. In Female Trouble, Waters had started kind of inching towards making a quote-unquote real movie, utilizing a semi-professional crew from the nearby university film department. And then with Desperate Living, he would make even further strides toward towards uh, legitimacy using some decent technical equipment for a change uh, and a crew that actually had somebody in charge uh, other than himself. He actually you know, delegated in this case. In this case, the crew was headed by Robert Mayer, who uh, joined John's Greenland crew as the sound editor or the sound recorder, rather, on Female Trouble. We talked about him a little bit in our last episode. But by Desperate Living, he had pivoted to uh, the unit manager job, which uh, he actually is a job that he performed in addition to being the sound recorder, which uh, if you read Bob Mayer's book, uh, sounded like uh, he definitely regretted taking on both of those jobs at the same time. It is a (laughs) lot for one person to do. After female trouble, Mayer had quit his job at the university and had got a job at the local public TV station there in Baltimore, where he met a guy named Tom Lazo. Loizo? How do I say that? Loizo? I think Loizo. <laughs> yeah, that looks to be about right. So the, two... <laughs> so the two became friends, and Loizo filmed a movie called A Love Letter to Edie, which was Mayer's short film about Edith Massey. When it came time to start planning Desperate Living, Mayer brought Loizo along with him, and Loizo would become the film's director of photography, which is actually the first time that anyone had held that title on a John Waters film. Yo. It's hard to get him to get like personal about stuff sometimes. Like he has fun stories about things, but this was interesting in a few different places. The commentary and some interviews I saw that it points out in different places. Like this is the first script I didn't write on pot. He said, uh, most of my other movies were written for potheads. And while I was on pot, he said, I wasn't here. He said, actually, Desperate Living is not my most joyous movie I've ever made. And I was not at my happiest point in life. He said, it's certainly darker. And he's like, in watching it back, it feels very grim. So he doesn't specify ever that I could find like exactly why that is. Uh, But he also does mention that it's the first time that the the camera was taken away from him is how he says it. I mean, I assume he gave it away, but (laughs) right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think he still operated the camera a lot. Even in the opening credits, it's like, it says, I think written, directed, and filmed by John Waters. I think he still held the camera a lot, but Tom Loizo was doing a lot of what a director of photography would normally do, which means, you know, he's getting light, light readings. He's working on the lighting. He's working on the, the, the settings on the camera, things like that. Whereas John Waters, if he was shooting it himself would have just been basically what a cameraman is on a movie versus a director of photography. Mm. Uh, So I think that's where the distinction comes in. So while writing the script for Desperate Living, Waters kind of had a hunch that Divine might not be able to appear in it. He had sort of seen the writing on the wall, so when he began writing the movie's main character, Mole, he did write it with Divine in mind, all while knowing that he might have to cast someone else in the role. Just to compound on that, I yeah, I found a great interview with him uh, on a publication from around this time, and... Uh, I guess he was getting that question a lot about if they had a falling out with divine or something like that. And uh, he said in this one interview quote, I see her a lot. 
Uh, I saw the place she's been in in New York, Women Behind Bars and The Neon Woman. I'm still in touch with her, and she wants to do another movie, so we're going to see what happens. Uh, when I wrote Desperate Living, I wrote it thinking Divine probably wouldn't be able to do this. Can you think of a single part in the movie that was written for Divine? It certainly wasn't Griselda. If Divine played anything, it was going to be the part of Mole. And I read in other places that, that the reason for that was he dug the idea of Divine getting to do different things. And Divine had been interested in doing different types of roles. So the butch lesbian would be a nice turn. Yeah. I mean, if you watch the movie thinking about it, you could definitely see Divine in that role. But he kind of wrote it thinking, okay, Divine could play this role, but Divine probably won't be able to play this role. So he kind of had to cater it towards towards a performer while also considering the fact that another performer might have to take over for it. So once it was official that Divine wasn't going to be able to be in the movie, Waters offered the role to Susan Lowe because he knew that Susan would throw herself into the role wholeheartedly. Susan Lowe was a Dreamland regular. She had appeared in all of Waters' films all the way going back to Mondo Trasho, but she was always in small bit roles. Remember in Female Trouble, she was pregnant and she was the receptionist at the at the beauty salon. Mm. Uh, but now with Desperate Living, she would be the star, essentially. And the last one, she was uh, our friend. She was in the, the gang that got cut out at the end that was going to bust in on and save Divine, right? No, no, that no, wasn't that her. Wasn't that, her. That, that was Cookie and, oh, what was the other girl's name? It, no, Susan Lowe was the, she was the receptionist at the beauty salon. She was very, very female, pregnant through, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, through okay, the whole okay. movie. Because remember, they used her baby for the Divine birth scene. Because uh, oh, yeah. they shot that at the end, that so that was Susan. Uh, but yeah, she she looks unrecognizable compared to what she looks like in this. Like uh, multiple maniacs and Pink Flamingo, she had even smaller roles, like just little bit parts. Like she's in the cavalcade of perversions, and you know, and multiple maniacs and things like that. But nothing major. Maybe not even a speaking part before Female Trouble. I can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, but now, yeah, now she's full blown. Like she is essentially. If there's a lead character to this movie. It's her. And she was absolutely committed to the role. When John offered her the part, he explained the drawbacks to it. Uh, Susan Lowe, if you've ever seen pictures of her, especially from this time, like she's a, a pretty attractive woman in real life. But to transform into mole, she would have to chop off all of her hair, bleach it out, and then have it styled into this very masculine, sort of proto-punk flat top with it's kind of shaved on the side, you know, and then Van Smith, uh, you know, the, the makeup and costume designer, he also wanted Lowe to grow out her finely plucked eyebrows and to stop shaving her legs, which she did, but she had to kind of gently break this news to her boyfriend and children saying like, sorry, but this is just what I'm going to look like for a while. <laughs> uh, then Van would uh, attach fake warts and moles to her face and add a single hair to each one of them. You know, very meticulous. And then mm. to top it all off, he put together a wardrobe for her uh, made of clothes found in the trash bins outside of the Salvation Army. So not like stuff that he bought at the Salvation Army, stuff that the Salvation Army decided wasn't good enough and they just threw away so they yeah. dug through the trash cans to find it so <laughs> that's where her wardrobe came from and when Ooh. sue's children saw mommy's new look uh they uh ran from her in fear and her boyfriend took a uh let's say leave of absence for a while <laughs> it wasn't too long though because, and it was disturbing for them like they said the first time the children saw susan that they were screaming in terror afraid of her <laughs> and uh her boyfriend's name was Kenny Ori. He was a guy that John Waters knew very well. He ran the Cat's Eye Pub in Baltimore. It's still there. I looked it up. 
He is not, but we'll talk about that in a second. The uh, reason he was friends with Waters is he ran that pub, and then also he would also, he, they said he would pick up Waters in his old Cadillac limo, and they would go shoot machine guns together. Out the field. <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. That's like he's got that in common with James Cameron, huh? James yeah, I Cameron guess so. and, and uh, what was her, Catherine Bigelow, didn't they go on dates where they just went out in the desert and shot machine guns? That's right, yeah. <laughs> he said, John Waters is like, yeah, he'd come pick me up, and he had this, like, trunk full of guns. He had so many guns. <laughs> but, uh, he's in the movie. He's, uh, he's the first guy that they bring in to Queen Carlotta to get executed. Oh, really? That's uh, him? That's him. That's Kenny Ori. <laughs> if you're wondering where he is now, John Waters says, quote, he later died from his stomach exploding. I'm not making that up. Jeez. <laughs> I don't. Well, I would, that's all he said. <laughs> like, I'm going to need a little more info. Yeah. <laughs> some, some details on exactly how that happened. Ooh, so, he talks about uh, Susan Lowe like, as the understudy rising above. Like He was super mm-hmm. proud of her. He did say that Mole, the character of Mole, was based on a real person. Uh, it was this butch lesbian he wouldn't name, but said hung out in this place called Cherry Show Bar on Broadway. I looked this place up too. And it's it's either moved or because when you look at Google image search, the place there now is called Desired Gentleman's Club. And it is definitely next to a truck stop. And I only think that that might be it because he said he never got this, by the way, but he knew her because he was there. And he said, and and for some reason, butch lesbians were there a lot and they were hookers for truck drivers. And I never understood that. Butch lesbians were the hookers for truck drivers. Uh-huh. And still uh, money. Yeah. But he said her thing is that she was very disturbing. She had blackheads all around her mouth. So your ultimate goal Ugh. every night was to not make her smile because they would pop. Which <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but he said the character of all, like Susan Lowe, nailed it. That's exactly what she was like. Wow. Except, except uh, Maul was not an alcoholic. I think Susan Lowe is super fun in this. I mean, she's clearly like not like a trained actor, like some she's, she's playing, she's playing. It, it, it comes across very, and you can say this about performances from a lot of people in most of these movies, very like school play. Like we're, mm. we're, we're uh, playing to the rafters kind of thing, but that's also John Waters direction. Cause if you hear stories about him, like, you know, they do these meticulous rehearsals and he basically plays out the part to everyone. And they, and basically essentially ask them to mimic the way that he's playing the part and he just wants everything super over the top and everything. So they're, they're kind of doing what he wants them to do, but yeah, they're, they're playing it very broad and very big, but that does add to the camp factor of all of these movies. So it it does play into the style of the movie, but she's no exception. I think she does play it that way, but she's still very fun and she is 100% invested in this role. And I think she did a great job. And I, I, I really wish that we'd seen her in more, bigger roles in, in Waters film. She's in most of his movies. She's in all of these movies, but never again was she given a role of, of this magnitude. So while Susan's part in the film is definitely like the juiciest, the biggest role, has the, the biggest arc of any of the characters, uh, several other Dreamland girls appear here as well. You've got Mink Stoll as Peggy Gravel, who is sort of, she's got a pretty interesting arc as well. She kind of starts off, she's not quite a, hero or anything she's she's pretty unlikable from the beginning but she does 
transform over the course of the film, certainly. Uh, and she is also fantastic in this, especially in the, the opening sequence in this with her yelling at the children who are playing baseball outside in her yard yeah. just cracks me up every single time. The The line, tell your mother I hate her, tell your mother I hate you, is the funniest fucking thing to me. <laughs> Because it's what I want to yell to most kids anyway, I guess. <laughs> but she's definitely unhinged in this movie. And I've oh, yeah. slowly like fallen in love with Mink Stoll. But that communist daycare center, I never knew this. It's weird. I think we mentioned Marilyn Manson once before. But he has a song called Misery Machine. And that rant is in that song. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So you've got Mink Stoll here. You've got Mary Vivian Pierce. She plays Princess Cuckoo. Uh, Cookie Muller plays Flipper, who is the like stripper with like like one arm. Uh, and Marina Milan, who I don't think we've talked about here, but she had small parts in uh, really all of Waters' films, going all the way back to Eat Your Makeup. Uh, but here she plays Shina, who is one of I think she's like Cookie. She's one of the lesbian revolutionaries. And of course, there is Edith Massey as the film's. Number one villain, Queen Carlotta. Do you ever notice that Edith doesn't walk very much in these movies? Uh, she doesn't need to. She's got guys willing to carry her around. At, well, at she's, she's carried around on a cot here. She's in a bird cage in Female Trouble, Playpen, and Pink play Flamingos. Play. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, I look. I, I figured this out because I was looking. I was just like, this is so weird. And according to John Waters, quote. That's because she can't walk and do dialogue at the same time. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when she's rehearsing the lines, sometimes she'll say, I went across the street, Edie picks up gun, and I... <laughs> so she memorizes stage direction yeah. that are in parentheses. Yeah. She says those two. <laughs> oh, boy. She just says the whole thing. So I just always figure it's easier if she just gets carried around in this one. Yeah, I think the only time I can think of her walking in female troubles when she's walking by Divine's apartment and Divine throws a fish at her. But of course, yeah. she, she doesn't have any dialogue during that. But yeah, I, I read something similar to where she she has a very hard time memorizing dialogue. Uh, in general, they and, and John Waters gives her a lot of dialogue, especially in this and in Female Trouble. She's got like long passages of dialogue. So he kind of refused to cut those up where he could like film part of the, the dialogue of the scene, then do another take and film another. He wanted it all to be like in one take. He, he insisted on that, even though you know, people told him like, why don't we just do it in bits and pieces and we'll edit it together? He didn't want to do it that way. So yeah. Edith would in order to learn her dialogue because her com continuously messing up her lines meant that she was wasting film, yeah. which on a movie that's super low budget, that's a big chunk of the budget. So she would write down her lines from the script over and over and over, like Bart Simpson on a chalkboard, just writing them over and over and over until they were like embedded in her memory so that she could remember them. But when she wrote them down, she would also write down the stage direction. So, so she would say her line and then she would say the stage direction along with it. And John Waters kept having to tell her, you don't, you don't need to say that part. <laughs> just say the dialogue. <laughs> and she either, I guess she just didn't understand. I'm not sure. <laughs> but that same, in that same interview though, he does say that she's going to have to get it together because I've already planned the next one and she's going to have to move around. 
Yeah, <laughs> for, for polyester, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 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 So we'll see. Well, the reason that Desperate Living was written with women in pretty much every lead role was because with this film, not only was John without his regular leading lady, Divine, but he was, for the first time ever, also without his leading man, David Lockery. So while Divine was enjoying a new level of fame after female trouble, Lockery wasn't having the same kind of luck, even though in his mind, he deserved the same type of of success that Divine was receiving. Lockery was, after all, one of Water's key creative collaborators on those early films. He's, you know, he's the one who connected Water with many of the other Dreamlanders. Like he was the kind of person who already knew these other people and brought them and John together. Uh, he had been the first person to introduce the concept of drag to Divine. Remember, dra- uh, Divine said he'd never heard the word drag before David Lockery. Yeah. I mean, David Lockery is, without a doubt, one of the most important figures in Waters' early career, like a key co- creative collaborator, not just a not just a cast member, but a major part of John John's creative world. So after the success of Pink Flamingos, Lockery moved to New York uh, to pursue a career as a you know quote unquote serious actor, hoping to cash in on the film's notoriety. But he wasn't finding any open doors really, so he returned to Baltimore to film female trouble. And then as soon as that was, he immediately went back to Manhattan afterwards to where he lived, hoping to catch his big break. So over the past couple of years, you know, with the release of pink flamingos and female trouble, he had made note, you know, in his mind, he'd made note of all the, the lines around the block that people were lining up for these movies and all the press that waters films were receiving all the buzz that they were receiving. And that kind of stoked his ego. Uh, And he expected his phone to be ringing off the hook with movie offers. He expected his mailbox to be overflowing with royalty checks. Uh, But unfortunately, neither one of those things were really happening. Although pink flamingos and to a lesser extent, female trouble were successful films. They were successful cult films, right? It's a different type of success. Mm. Than, than like a blockbuster movie. These were successful on their own terms based on their budget and how they were released, right? They weren't right. making millions and millions of dollars for anybody. And a lot of uh, casting directors uh, and producers, they didn't see these Dreamland players as like real actors. They were novelties. They were John Waters actors, not real actors, you know? Yeah. So people, yeah. they, they, they none of them were really getting cast in roles outside of John Waters films. And quite honestly, most of them didn't have a lot of desire to do that. Like Mink Stoll, Mary Vivian Pierce. I think they were pretty content just to work with John, but David Lockery saw himself as an actor and and felt like he wanted to branch out. And it just wasn't happening because he was just seen as like the guy from the John Waters movies. So he started to feel like he was being left behind a little bit. Although he was receiving money from Waters early films, thanks to that profit sharing plan that Waters set up that we talked about on the last episode, Uh, That wasn't enough, though, to dampen the resentment that was building inside of him. And he became obsessed with the idea that Waters and Divine were becoming rich and famous while he was still struggling to pay his rent. This obsession soon turned to anger, and in order to soothe his hurt feelings and to boost his ego, David turned more and more to hard drugs. Uh, Specifically, he started using angel dust with alarming regularity. And tragically, David Lockery passed away on July 29th, 1977 at the age of 32. Uh, The circumstances of his death are kind of vague. Some reports say that he died of a PCP overdose, while others say that he bled to death while on PCP after cutting himself on broken glass. I think I saw one where it said like he fell into a, a glass a coffee table and cut himself like cut an artery or something. And Uh, he was unable to feel the pain of the cuts 
due to the anesthetic effects of the drug. So he bled out. So, but it's not sure because I think he died alone. So I don't think anybody really knows exactly what happened. But depending on where you read about his death, you'll read overdose or that he bled to death. Uh, now, while Waters' book Shock Value explains that it was because of Lockery's death that he didn't appear in Desperate Living, uh, the timelines don't really match up. I kind of I kind of dug into this a little bit uh, because Desperate Living was released two months before Lockery's death. So they had filmed it long, like seven months earlier. According to Robert Mayer in his book Low Budget Hell, the decision to make Desperate Living without Lockery was one that was made before they'd even begun working on the film. Uh, Lockery was reportedly in such a bad place and had become so difficult that Waters made the tough decision to write the film without a role for Lockery in mind. I mean, we, we've talked about how uh, Waters is big on like, hey, during production, no drugs, yeah. which is incredibly admirable. So if they were in touch at all and they saw how bad he was. Yeah, and he had, he had uh, according to Waters, he'd never been big into drugs before that at all, like not even pot and LSD and stuff. I mean, he, they, he did it, but he wasn't like abusing it in any way whatsoever, you know? So, but when he started using PCP, like it really, and part of it is probably because he was depressed or whatever uh, over the course of his career. Uh, But it did, it did unfortunately affect their relationship and it affected his, uh, really his relationship with everyone. And he he ended up passing away without ever really reconciling that. And And it's unfortunate because, like I said, David Lockery was a huge part of these movies, uh, all the way up to to Female Trouble. I mean, he had a very big role in Female Trouble, and oh, yeah. he is essentially John Waters' leading man in all of these movies. He's incredibly charismatic. That, that's what I was going to say. Is like he's so charismatic, and you can easily see him fitting into a lot of John Waters' movies from here on out. Like he yeah. would have been. I. He's he's definitely. I mean, obviously, besides Divine, who is the one that everybody's going to point out, he and Mink are probably like next in line to me for like the most charismatic, like re- memorable characters that yeah. John Waters has. You can see why John chose to use him. There's a natural something about David Lockery that that really just shines that you want mm-hmm. to watch him and see what he's doing. And we we saw his acting improve over the last few movies and so uh i can it feels like uh, it's such a bummer to see that because it feels like if he had held on a little bit longer and of course had done it straight sober or whatever i guess uh that he i I don't i I have a hard time believing he wouldn't have eventually broken through at least as a person regularly on cult movie the cult movie scene you know yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i could see him getting involved with even andy warhol's crew in new york during this time who was making movies but even you know breaking into you know if he he had stuck around and been in polyester been in hairspray like i could see him getting character actor roles in bigger movies you know he might not have been i don't think he was ever going to be a leading man he's not a leading man type. he's a he's a quirky character actor type but i think that had he been able to hold it together and and get his shit together and get off of drugs, then yeah, I absolutely think he could have had a pretty lucrative career as a working actor going forward. But uh, it, it's it is really a bummer, honestly, that he yeah. wasn't able to do that. So there are a few other Dreamlanders in the cast in in Desperate Living, other than the women that we mentioned already. You've got Ed Perano. Uh, Channing Wilroy, George Figgs, they all have pretty small roles. Uh, George Figgs, memorably completely naked for his entire role in the film. I think he's the, oh, nudist. Yeah. He's the nudist janitor that Princess Cuckoo's at. Her- <laughs> What's his name? Like Herbert or something like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, so they're all in the film. A lot of dick in this movie. 
a lot of dick in this movie. Uh, but yeah, and I think I think when I texted you about this movie, I, that that was my description. Is like there's a lot of dick in this movie. There's a lot more so than any other John Waters movie. You, you said uh, I believe there it's a wrestling movie, and you sent me that image. It's a wrestling oh, yeah. movie. And uh, it's a John Waters movie and a lot of dick or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are several other roles in the film that were going to be cast uh, or going to be filled rather with newcomers. You've got Sharon Niesp, who is the longtime girlfriend of Cookie Muller. She appears here as Shotzi, one of Flipper's le- lesbian revolutionaries. Shotzi's the one who is caught in the car with the little person that, that uh, yeah. Cookie catches in the car. That That's uh, Sharon. So she'll pop up in small roles in a couple of other Waters films later on. Uh, there's also Joe Trabert, better known or and actually credited as Turkey Joe, who appears in a small but I would say very memorable role as the motorcycle cock. Uh, cock. <laughs> I said cock. <laughs> <laughs> just when you go. think, just when you oh, think man. there couldn't be any more dick in this movie. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Bell. That was a Freudian slip of some sort. That was, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Turkey Joe plays the motorcycle cop, also known as Sheriff Shithead. Interestingly enough, the only guy who doesn't show his cock in this movie. So <laughs> there you go. He sure shows a, a lot of uh, nice little lingerie, though, doesn't he? Yeah, he really yeah. goes for it there. And uh, <laughs> this it's especially like looking back on it now for that guy. I wonder how he felt in his later years, because Turkey Joe at this point, he was a bar owner. Bell's Point Bar, which is part of Baltimore, I guess the neighborhood in Baltimore. Bell's Point yeah. is the neighborhood where like John lived. Uh, well, like initially it's where they filmed most of uh, well, a lot of this movie, actually. George Figgs, like all these guys lived in Fells Point, which was a ghetto basically at the time fells point's like a, apparently i've not been to baltimore but fells point apparently now is a very hip neighborhood but back in the 60s and 70s it was like you it, you read bob mayer's book about this when he's living in fells point and it sounds like he's living in times square in 1970 where like he just <laughs> like people are getting robbed outside his door all the time like it is a dump his bar i guess was pretty safe because apparently it was super popular for politicians and cops and that kind of thing he was a big history buff uh, you, you could, they, apparently he was the guy that like could tell you everything about Baltimore, especially mm. from the fifties on. He knew mm-hmm. every little detail about every little place, and so all these people hanging out there. Uh, I, I assume it was the nicest bar that the Dreamlanders ever frequented, but I, I didn't see it. So um, <laughs> I still don't know how he got his nickname. Uh, Turkey Joe loved nicknames. Yeah. He loved nicknames apparently, and he said that he had like the best recall of anybody they've ever known and he could recall like every patron that ever came in the bar and so he gave every patron a nickname maybe that was part of his process or something but he would announce you when you walked in there's hmm. there's smiling todd davis <laughs> <laughs> maybe he just there's, liked turkey like somebody saw him saw him eating a turkey a turkey sandwich one day and just like old turkey joe over there old and they just stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> he just liked that one uh but because of his uh baltimore knowledge he later becomes like a film locations expert for the area nice. uh, and later becomes the film commissioner of Baltimore. Oh, wow. Uh, whilst, whilst wearing lingerie, I assume. But, yeah. <laughs> Underneath I his know. uniform. Yeah. But he passed in 2019. So RIP Turkey Joe, I assume on his uh, tombstone, it says something like, uh, I wish I could fit my whole head in your mouth so you could suck out my eyeballs. Now it's, now it's time for that mouth. <laughs> 
Uh, you find out a lot of these guys, like a lot or a lot of these people in these movies are like bar patrons or bar owners mm-hmm. around the place. Like, I guess they just know them for all that stuff or or they're Pat Moran people. I mean, like, there's people like uh, the guy who dies from Griselda sitting on his head. The, the husband? Yeah. 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 Uh, he 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 was like a fanzine guy apparently for a long time, and that, hmm. that dude's still working now. He's in like all kinds of B movies. Oh wow! Um, but like a lot of people are like somehow connected to Pat Moran in a lot of ways. The, the two naked kids, by the way, would probably could be controversial now. I'm not sure how I how guess. you deal with kids. The the boy is Brooke, who is Pat Moran's son, and okay. he's like now still working in Hollywood. He's a property, a prop master on, on like hmm. a ton of movies. He married Tracy Lords later on. So I assume what? that would come up later <laughs> in John Waters' career. Uh, yeah. John Waters says he doesn't know who the little girl was. He never saw her again. Like he said, his, her parents were really nice and they brought her over. They explained the role. You know, like Mink wasn't even in, in the room. The parents were there and he was there, but like they did that part and she was paid $20. He wrote her a check for $20 and she never cashed it, and he never heard or saw her. Sorry again. So I don't know. So weird. I don't think we've talked about Pat Moran enough. I mean, we we talk about her a lot, but like Pat Moran really is. She is John Waters' like right hand man. She is essentially his production manager on this one. She is essentially his uh, second unit director or assistant director. I guess would be a better uh, better term. But you know, Pat is responsible for a lot of the casting in these movies that aren't any roles that aren't like your, the people that they were already friends with, Mm. but that's something that she turned into a career. Like she became a casting director, like a big time casting director for pretty much every, every big production that comes through Baltimore or Washington DC, which is nearby, you know? So like, you know, like one of her big breaks was homicide life on the streets. You know, she, she did all the casting for that. She did uh, enemy of the state you know, with, with Gene Hackman and Will Smith. She did The Wire, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Blair Witch 2. She, anything that's like in Baltimore, she is the casting director. She's won Emmys for it. She she did uh, Spielberg's Lincoln. She was the casting director because uh, there are big chunks of it that are shot in Maryland. So, you know, wow. when you're talking about people who have worked on John Waters movies who have like turned it into like a career Pat Moran has become like an, an incredibly successful casting director in Hollywood, but while still maintaining her home in on the East Coast, because that's what she becomes an expert in locations and 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 actors and things around Baltimore because of her, you know, getting her works her, her career started on these films. Which I I don't know. I it's, think that's a really cool little success story. It's neat, and I I don't you know recall seeing her in any of i don't know like you don't see much like with interviews with her i mean you can find them and there's but she was you know she was heavily featured on multiple maniacs like in special features and stuff like that and and so there was some good stuff with her on there but she doesn't talk much but she seems to be like yeah the the business end of john waters like they say Mm -hmm. like sometimes the creatives like have an idea and then they need a business manager she almost reminds me of that a little bit not mm. not that she's managing his business but that she just like makes things happen for him well yeah yeah i mean john waters himself as i mentioned on the last episode he's an incredibly skilled businessman 
it, it's there's a funny contrast with John Waters between who he is in real life and and the things that he creates on screen. But off screen, he's in, one incredibly intelligent, uh, incredibly well read, and has a great head for business. Probably be because his father was a businessman and he learned from him. Mm-hmm. But you always have to, you know, when you're making a movie, like we've said a million times on the show, movies are collaborative, and you've he can't do everything. Right. So Pat Moran, the things that he couldn't do, she takes care of so that he can focus on the creative side of making the movie. He's definitely John Waters, by the way, just uh, as we're recording this one, he was just on uh, Bill Maher's Club Random. I love that he seems to have that same thing. I, I get interested in this with with people who are very successful that. Uh, like you hear about with guys like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, where they have like the same outfits that are in the closet and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Sean Waters says he has like he has different homes, but they're all set up exactly the same. They all look <laughs> exactly alike. And he, yeah, and like he has like similar outfits. He's like, I have like seven pairs of underwear at each location or something like that. Like he's describing it. This is like I just don't want to have to think about all that. Yeah. <laughs> just, Put, put your brain towards more, you know, more interesting things, more interesting mm-hmm. energy. So rounding out the main cast here, we've got two newcomers, Gene Hill and Liz Renee. So first, let's talk a little bit about Gene Hill, who plays Mink Stoll's maid, Griselda. So Gene Hill, if you look at her IMDb or whatever, she has exactly zero acting credits prior to this film and exactly two after it, both of which are John Waters films. Although I mentioned to you guys in our Pink Flamingos episode that I had read his script to uh, the Pink Flamingos follow-up, the sequel that never got made, Flamingos Forever. And there is a character in that that was clearly written with her in mind. And when I read it, I was like, who in the world is he going to cast in this role? And then I watched Desperate Living, and I was like, oh, this that role was written for Gene Hill because he describes the character, and he describes Gene Hill. I mean, basically. So that's clearly what he had in mind. But finding Gene Hill was not easy. Uh, In the script for Desperate Living... Griselda is described as a 350 pound maid. That's all in the first scenes of the the script. That's how he describes her. But when Waters put out ads in the newspapers to find an actress for the role, the ads he put out were a little bit more specific, reading wanted 400 pound black actress. Now, some newspapers like the Washington Post refused to run that ad because they said it was discriminatory. Uh, But John's local paper, uh, the Baltimore Sun, they obliged. They had no problem with it. So he put out the paper and remarkably, several women actually responded to the ad and they came to Waters' apartment to audition for the role. But according to him, and I quote, most were either terrible actresses, self-conscious about their weight or simply not fat enough. So a lot of them, even the ones that that stuck around uh, or the ones that he felt fit the part, immediately left the audition when he mentioned that there was a little bit of nudity that was going to be involved. I, I remember mm. one story he told. He said this lady, as soon as he opened the door, uh, she said, well, I am a very religious woman. And he was immediately like, this is probably not the movie for you. <laughs> and she left. <laughs> so uh, so he goes through several actresses. None of them are really working or they're just not good actresses or whatever. And unable to find an actress who fit the bill, John called an actor friend of his in desperation, hoping that the friend might know someone who would be right for the part. And the friend recommended Gene Hill who stood five foot one and weighed just a few pounds shy of 400 pounds. So John contacted her. He sets up an audition at his apartment. And the day of the audition, you know, she rings the doorbell. He opens the door and there she was. He says he described her as a dream come true. 
<laughs> he actually um he says uh in in the commentary that you know he i guess when he talked to this friend that he uh said i i just need at least like 300 pounds and his friend was like no i know somebody who's four and he's like okay <laughs> and so right. uh so she he said when she showed up at the door that she immediately grabbed his dick walking in and he said it's it it certainly uh uh, put me off my off my game. <laughs> I don't understand what was happening. So she shows up, and the two they begin chatting. Uh, Waters loves her right off the bat immediately, and uh, you know as they talk, they talked about what this the role would require, and she had no objections to the nudity in it. Saying, uh, "I've got a lot to show, honey," is what she told John Waters. Uh, she had no problem with dyeing her hair blonde. She, in fact, she claimed that she had already dyed blonde a couple of times herself in the past. Uh, she was all in. She had no objections to anything in the script at all. She was like on water's wavelength, basically. Uh, wow. So after listening to her give a hilarious reading of the script, John went over the contract with her, gave her an advance on her salary, and then it was settled. John Waters had his Griselda. She's the one who used that term milkheads, which I was like, I don't even know what that means. But apparently it was a, I, I said it right up at the top, we're the three milkheads. Maybe we were mm -hmm. already kicked off of all the stations for racial racial uh, <laughs> words but apparently it was like honky in baltimore dollars ah. that he used to hear it all the time it's like white dudes with big heads <laughs> and, <he's just> like, <laughs> and uh, they called them milkheads i don't know he said it's one of those things that uh has completely seemed to have phased out but i'm bringing it back yeah <laughs> we're taking it back i think gene hill is very funny in this movie I, I don't want hilarious. no white man looking at my tampon. That's that's her best line in the whole movie. It's so funny <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, I watch this movie with subtitles on. I watch a lot of movies with subtitles on these days, and it really makes me appreciate John Waters' dialogue. Uh, but that line in particular, like just it's not just the line, but her delivery of it. Like she is very funny in this. I wouldn't call her like a good actress, but I I would call her a good comedian if that makes sense. You know, like she's good at selling John Waters dialogue. Yeah, I could see that. By the way, in the commentary, when, when she's doing that whole scene and Bosley is messing with her, you know, she makes that line about the Tampax and he's like, oh my God, I forgot about that line. I don't even remember why I came up with that. But <laughs> like, it matters. Like, I guess black dudes can look at Tampax. That's okay. That makes sense. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and then he's like, she, he's like pulling the stuff out of her purse and he pulls out the toilet paper and he's like, Oh my God, I did the toilet paper. So ridiculous. Who would steal toilet paper? And I'll have, you know, that every hotel I stay at, I steal the toilet paper. On the way out. <laughs> I take all of it. Cause toilet paper costs money and it's free toilet paper. Well, who, who's to say that you weren't going to wipe your ass with it. That's so, true. They didn't know. My they, don't toilet know how much they don't know how much you're pooping. Yeah, so I just pack it in my bags on the way home. So the other major role that was yet to be cast was the character of Muffy St. Jacques, which is Mole's girlfriend. In the screenplay, Waters describes Muffy as an exaggerated blonde glamour girl type, va-va-voom figure, dressed in a skimpy see-through curtain. She has pieced together for clothes. I think in the actual movie, she it looks like she's using a um, like a shower curtain. I think yeah. is what it looks like yeah. in those early scenes. But you see, at this point in, in uh, their career, Divine was becoming famous enough to be a selling point in John Waters' films. So in Divine's absence, Waters wanted to cast another 
name, another name actor or actress. Uh, someone that New Line thought that they could sell to audiences. They're like, hey, give us a star. Give us somebody that people know so that we have a, a person to sell this movie if you're not going to have Divine in it. Well, the person that John Waters found was a name in some circles. Uh, I don't think it's probably <laughs> quite what New Line was looking for, but she she was famous as, in, in her own way. So Liz Renee. Liz Renee was an ex-stripper and girlfriend of a mobster who, at the time that she was cast, was a 50-something grandmother who just so happened to have a certain Jane Mansfield quality that John Waters liked. Now, Liz Renee's life story, first of all, is wild. It sounds like something out of, you know, out of a John Waters movie. I just, I, I want to do a little sidebar here and just talk about her a bit because she has, it is a hell of a life that she has led. So <laughs> born Pearl Elizabeth Dobbins in 1926, Liz was raised by fanatical religious parents, but ran away at a young age to pursue a career in show business, which she did by first winning a Marilyn Monroe lookalike contest before becoming a V-girl during the war, a showgirl, and eventually a gangster mole. Renee was the girlfriend of a notorious gangster named Mickey Cohen. In 1961, after she refused to cooperate with the authorities in prosecuting some big gangland figures, Renee was found guilty of perjury and sentenced to three years in prison. So while in jail, she began writing her autobiography, which was called My Face for the World to See, which was published in 1971 and became a bestseller, uh, finally thrusting Liz into the limelight that she had always craved. After she had been released from prison, she became a burlesque queen, traveled all around doing shows. Then she gained more notoriety in 1974 when, at 47 years old, she streaked fully nude down Hollywood Boulevard. And it was her biography, or her autobiography rather, that put Renee on John's radar after he received a copy of it uh, that had been gifted to him by Pat Moran as a uh, as a Christmas gift, and he immediately loved her. She has a uh, John Waters-type personality. Very humble, this Liz Renee. Uh, I think in one of her books, somewhere in there, she describes herself as perhaps the most beautiful woman of her time. <laughs> so, but she does put perhaps in there, so, you know. She, does. <laughs> she, says, she says in the commentary, she was like, yeah, I always, because I, I did a contest once and I won it, and I always get compared to Marilyn Monroe, who is the queen of everything, so very cool. I always her and Dolly Parton, which I am more beautiful than by far. Oh. <laughs> so, go, okay. go get it, Liz Renee, I guess. <laughs> but When he heard that Liz was stripping at a club in Boston, John raced from his home in Provincetown to see her in in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, He was even more (laughs) intrigued when he found out that her act was being billed as the first mother-daughter strip routine. Um, I I bet it wasn't the first ever, but that's how they were billing it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, see, Liz had talked her 27-year-old daughter, Brenda, into following in her mother's footsteps. So they were doing this show together. And then after watching her routine, Waters was convinced that Liz would make a great addition to his cast. He looked at Candy Barr was the other burlesque entertainer he had considered at the time, but she was just an angry lesbian, he says. So he he went with her. And this this meeting, by the way, was completely by chance. Like Waters says he was in Boston for something else and wasn't even thinking of her, but he had read that book. And then he just happened to see she was performing and and doing the mother-daughter routine and winning yeah. this year. Liz Renee had a very little acting experience before this. She Wait, had only appeared what? <laughs> she had only appeared in a handful of small roles before Desperate Living, the most significant of which was probably Blackenstein, where she is credited as, as simply a couple in bed, assuming there was 
another person also credited as couple in bed. I guess unless they're just talking about her boobs. I don't know. I was I was about to say, <laughs> let's, let's not ignore the couple. <laughs> <laughs> but uh her her lack of experience was actually a plus for Waters because it meant that she wasn't a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And the reason that this is important is because uh, Desperate Living, believe it or not, was not a union film. See hang if on. Uh, hang on. What? <laughs> If a uh, if a movie is a union film, then that means that every actor who appears in it has to be paid at least the guild minimum. Uh, and if an actor is a union actor, then they are forbidden to work on non-union films, or they could you know they could get fined. So basically, that means that if they had cast a union actor in the film, then it becomes a union film. So everyone has to be paid union fees, and then the budget of Desperate Living like triples just by doing that. So. Oof. So yeah, so that so it was it was a plus that she wasn't. Well, she she may not remember that she has a SAG card, but I definitely heard from her own lips that she tells a story about this great moment where when she first uh, left home, she went to Arizona to it was like Mesa to see what a film set looked like. It was a movie called Sound of Fury uh, with Frank Lovejoy and Kathleen Ryan and Lloyd Bridges. And she was there and to hear her tell the story, basically when she got there, she was immediately swarmed by the casting people that they wanted her in this movie. And she explained, no, I'm just here to see the film set. And I think she was like 15 at this time or like a little, or maybe it was right. I guess whatever age you just said that, but she's like, I'm too young. And I, 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 I'm not a part of the guild or anything and blah, blah, blah. They were like, well, we'll take care of that. And said that they sent somebody and overnight, got her a, a SAG card so that she could be in that movie. Wow. And so she's, I guess, just an extra in the movie. But also on the set, uh, Life Magazine was there to talk to Lovejoy and instead became infatuated with her. And she ended up with like a five-page spread in Life Magazine called <laughs> Pearl's Big Moment. And Lovejoy ended up with like one picture in that spread that is just captioned Pearl meets the stars. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. But, uh, but maybe that's why maybe that her sad card says Pearl as she ended up changing. Well, her also name. like if she got that when she was like 15 or when she was, I mean, this is 30 years later, 30 plus yeah, years later. True. So, uh, I mean, you're sad being a member of the guild. You, I, I don't think it's like, it's not permanent. You have to be consistently working in order to maintain your membership. Yeah. So yeah, if sense. she wasn't consistently working over the years and it would have expired and she would no longer be a member. She hopped around into a lot of different stuff there. Like I don't, she's one of those people that just made it happen. And then the whole, she talks about getting derailed with the gang the, stuff. Like she was the whole going to prison up. thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she's like, this is so stupid because she was like, so-and-so got murdered in a bar barber's chair and it was, you know, my boyfriend was involved in that. And then it was just, uh, you know, I told a little white lie to the cops. And then I get put in jail for three years because of a little white lie. I mean, if you had to tell, if you were getting asked by the cops to say a bunch of shit about murder incorporated over here, you'd probably lie too and not want to be involved. <laughs> but it's my first and only ever offense and I get put in jail for three years. She said right before that, she had been in conversations with Cecil B. DeMille uh, to do, the, I think, the biblical character Esther oh, in wow. a movie. <laughs> wow. but, uh, but he also died like the day she got indicted or something. Mm. So. Uh, well, I mean, to to her credit, she turned that whole going to prison thing into 
kind of a career booster because that's when she wrote her biography and that's when she kind of became actually famous is when that book came out. So uh, it, it oddly enough, her s- short stint in prison probably gave her a career boost that she would not have received otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that, that my face for the world to see, if I'm not mistaken, is a line in female trouble. Like he, yeah, I, I remember yeah. reading that too. And I don't recall the line in female trouble, but it was something that waters had used. And it's also candy dark, the name of candy darling's autobiography. Candy darling was a uh, member of Andy Warhol's factory crew. Who was in a lot of Andy Warhol's movies. Her autobiography, I think is also called my face of the world to see. And I'm not sure which one came out first, honestly. So anyway, John Waters goes to see Liz at this show and in between sets at this strip tease, uh, he approached Renee and asked her if she'd be interested in making a film with him. Uh, She wasn't familiar with any of his work, but she did give him a business card and suggested that he contact her in Los Angeles to discuss it. And on his next visit to LA, John and Liz, uh, they he, he contacted her. They set up a meeting. They they had a lunch meeting at the Brown Derby because John Waters thought that was a fun, like very stereotypical place to have a Hollywood meeting. So they went to the Brown Derby uh, where Liz arrived wearing a pink floor length evening gown that was cut like in the middle down to her waist. And Waters describes her in his book saying her face was incredibly beautiful and her cleavage was mind boggling. So the first thing they discussed when they started having this meeting was Renee's salary demands, which John agreed to. Then she explained that she would not perform any sex acts in the film. And John assured her that he was not making a porno, uh, although he was deliberately vague about the plot since he wasn't yet sure about her sense of humor. Uh, She agreed to do the part, but the budget would only allow her to be in Baltimore for three weeks. So they would have to actually shoot around her scenes and rehearse the entire film without her. I think she got paid about $10,000 of the $65,000 budget uh, just for three weeks worth of work. So she was a big part of the, of the, the budget for this. John avoided giving her the script before she arrived, worried that she might get cold feet if she read the whole thing. So he, mm. uh, he had kind of given her some ideas of who she'd be playing. He mentioned that she'd be playing a lesbian, which she was kind of like, she was okay with, I guess, but a little, you know, he said that when she told her that over the phone, she got silent for a little bit, but she didn't back out or anything, but he didn't go into too much detail beyond that. So he didn't really know what to expect once she showed up in Baltimore. And once she arrived, John and Pat Moran, they took Renee out to dinner, you know, kind of schmoozed with her. And then afterwards they went back to his apartment and did a read through of the entire script. And thankfully their worries about scaring her off were unfounded because she laughed through the entire script reading. So she was like, on board with it. A lot of the regular Dreamlanders were nervous about Liz's arrival because it was kind of like this whole, you know, things were getting bigger and they didn't know how it would be working with an outsider. But Liz quickly integrated herself with the cast and crew and was by all accounts a dream to work with. In fact, the only objection that she brought up about the script was towards the end during the scene where Mole cuts her dick off. Uh, you probably remember that scene, I would imagine. <laughs> so it's oh, easily oh that, oh, yeah. that one is, that, oh, is, that okay, ring, is okay. it ringing a bell yeah yeah all right so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably the most outrageous scene in the entire film but it wasn't actually the like the actions of the scene that liz took issue with instead it was her line where she's pleading with mole and she says oh mole i'll love it i'll feel it i'll eat it just like old times it was that part where she says eat it that's the part she didn't like uh, and I think uh, from the way John Waters describes it, it brought up some traumas from her time in prison uh, because there were a lot of lesbians in prison. And she, you know, she wasn't 
you know, nothing happened to her or she, you know, or anything. She wasn't involved in anything, but she saw things in prison. And I think this brought up some memories for her that she didn't want to revisit. So mm-hmm. it took a while, but after some hemming and hawing, Waters was able to convince her that the line was funny and that, and she ended up doing it. She ended up saying the line as written. Although if you watch it in the scene, she does hesitate a little bit. And like, she is kind of visibly horrified when she says the line in the final film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is the sign of true comedic genius when you have to explain the joke and convince someone that it's funny. Well, I, I don't think it was a matter of convincing her that it was funny. It was a matter of like, hey, the people who watch my movies are going to think this is funny. Yeah, and yeah. and it is a funny line. I mean, it, it really is. I know is. It's, it's bothersome <laughs> to you, but but it's a comedy line. And everybody's got their, you know, their their things. And so right. their triggers we've discussed with John, John Waters. John Waters knows his audience, though. And he knew that people who watched his movies would find that line funny. And that's what he had to convince Liz Renee of. Not that it was just funny, funny, but and he wasn't trying to explain the joke necessarily, but just say that, hey, trust me, the people who like my movies are going to, are going to think that's a funny line. It's funny. Uh, I meant to say too, when you were talking about, she was sure that he was getting her for a porno. It was like the first conversation they had. He says that she, she must've thought a thing. Cause she's like, I'm not doing a porno. And he's like, I don't want you for a porno. We're not, we're not doing that. I want you for a regular movie. So then, then later on and you know, LA when they were having their meeting too, he said, she still showed up and had that list of like, it was like a, a, a a thought out list of Liz Renee will not do this. Liz Renee will not put this here. (laughs) And and so it was like, she was like, we're not doing that. Yeah. This is not the kind of movie we're making. (laughs) Yeah. She also little separate stories about her that I loved hearing him talk about was uh, that he was asked about her paintings because apparently she was doing a lot of art at the time or something. And he said, Mm. yeah, I've seen her paintings, which are mind boggling. They all look like her. Every character <laughs> is in them. If it's Cleopatra, they all have her face. He said when, when she would do them was always when she was like broke or something. And so she would get publicity because she was doing art. And then the next day she'd have an art show and it was just to pay her bail bonds. So like that's what <laughs> <she was> <laughs> he said another thing he, she did to really impress him was anytime that anybody asked for her autograph, wherever they were, he said she would do it on a deposit slip for her checking account. And then she would autograph it on the back, hoping that maybe they would just uh, go home and deposit some money in her account. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I thought that was brilliant. I love it. (laughs) She seems like a very unique character, but he said definitely that they would go to like clubs sometimes. And just like all these older men would like rush her and be like, Liz! Yeah, they knew who she was. Yeah. Oh man. So, uh, Todd, that's, that's all the cast. I mean, do we even bother with the Star Trek thing? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> nobody in Star Trek, but I'm bump bump. All right. That's <laughs> moving on with desperate living. Waters got just a little bit closer to his dream of making a film entirely in a studio. That's his dream. He, he just wants everything to be fake. Basically. He doesn't want any, any semblance of real life. So he's like, my, my goal is to make a film entirely in a studio. And he came pretty close here. Whereas the majority of his previous films had been shot either on location or in the homes of various dreamlanders, including his own apartment with desperate living, nearly all of the action took place on two massive sets that Vince Perrano built. Now, while this movie's $65,000 budget is much higher than any budget the waters had worked with so far, that's still a very small budget for a feature film, especially a feature film that takes place almost entirely 
in a fictitious town like Mortville, which they're going to have to build from the ground up. Waters' concept for Mortville was that it was a town filled with citizens who were mortified at their daily existence, hence Mortville. A lot of people think it's like a death thing, like Mort, you know, but it's actually mm. short for mortified, which is one of John Waters' favorite words. You'll hear him say that a lot. Yeah, you know, I was listening to him talk about that, but he said that um, that was something they used to say themselves, or they still say, uh, him and his friends still say like, oh, I guess we're going to Mortville. You know, like Mink has that line when the, the Turkey Joe's there says, I've never been more mortified by anything in my life mm-hmm. or something like that. And he, he was mm-hmm. talking about it there. That was like uh, mortified was a word that evolved like for them that they used to say, like, oh, we're going to Mortville now. Well, Waters and Peranio had they had a couple of old friends who owned a big chunk of land in Hampton, Maryland, which is about 40 miles south of Baltimore. And they agreed to allow the crew to construct the exterior sets of Mortville there only if every trace of the town would vanish once filming was complete. Uh, You see, this land had a farmhouse on it. This is where these friends lived. They lived on the farmhouse out there. And as it was designed, they would have to drive straight through the main street of Mortville to get to their own house, which is at the top of the hill. So naturally, they wanted some assurance that this was only going to be temporary and that they wouldn't have to look at this eyesore every day for the rest of their lives. Uh, Mortville itself was made almost entirely out of garbage that Waters and Piranio uh, collected. First, to, to get this garbage, the two of them started canvassing junkyards for scrap material to use, but the owners of said junkyards turned out to be a little more hostile towards these two dumpster divers uh, and kept running them off. They kept getting run, run off of junkyards, so uh, that wasn't working out. So they used another strategy where they would drive around Baltimore, and anytime they saw someone tearing something down, they'd hit the brakes, They'd get out and they would beg the people to let them haul away the rubble. So this is how they came up with most of the material used in this film. And little by little, Mortville began to take shape. The street was paved, the fake fronts of the shabby homes were raised, and decaying dead animals that they found in the nearby woods were hung from trees as decoration. And eventually, volunteers even started showing up with their own trash to further litter the streets of Mortville. I can't imagine why the owners of the property wouldn't want this to just stay. Well, this just, just stay in there the whole film time. history. This uh, <laughs> right. shit town. This, this is... could be a this could be a tourist destination one day. <laughs> right, they're going to show up. <laughs> one of those people. One of the people that owns the property is in the movie too, and it's yeah. one of the guys that first comes in and grabs Griselda and make like part of part of the Queen's uh, little. The private her army leather of yeah her leather leather, leather daddy army, army. <laughs> yeah. it's one of one of those guys is the owner of the property i remember him okay. saying that in the commentary and i can't remember his name the other one by the way is also like i think at the time uh there were two of them that run in and i think the other one he said was like mink stole's boyfriend at the time who okay. ends up marrying vivian pierce is or not vivian pierce but her sister instead oh sick yeah interesting small world like how's that how's that for family trivia or something (laughs) (laughs) well the crowning jewel for the mortville set would be queen carlotta's castle and waters wanted this castle to look like a cheesy version of disneyland complete with turrets flags and a drawbridge he wanted like your stereotypical goofy movie castle basically So Piranio made the decision that this was the one building in Mortville that couldn't be built out of just trash. Instead, he constructed the fake front of this three-story building out of cheap plywood, propping it up by just a bunch of two-by-fours. This was like a serious OSHA violation, this whole thing. In fact, towards the end of the film, 
you know, uh, you've got this, the big speech at the very end of the movie, you've got Susan Lowe as mole giving her big freedom speech to the citizens of, of Mortville after they've been liberated. And mm-hmm. she's standing in the castle window. Well, she's actually just precariously balanced on a ladder behind the set. And everyone's just hoping that a big gust of wind doesn't come and knock the whole thing down while she's up there. <laughs> oh my God. So once filming in Mortville began, Pat Moran had the difficult job of rounding up 50 extras a day to play the citizens of the town. And Waters wanted some like very seedy characters to portray Mortville citizens. So Moran asked every low life that she met on the street if they wanted to be in a movie. Like you just see some crackhead outside and say, hey, buddy, you want to be in a movie? (laughs) And that's what she was doing. She was just walking (laughs) around the shitty neighborhoods of Baltimore trying to find people. So in order to guarantee that she would have 50 people show up on the day of the shoot, she would invite 100 people hoping that at least half of them would would show up. And then she would tell them to report outside of Edith's uh, thrift store, Edith's shopping bag, at 6 a.m. sharp, where a rented school bus that they deemed the Mortville Express would whisk them off to the shooting location. And the reason they did it this way is because Waters didn't want the extras to be able to drive themselves to the set on their own because he was worried that if they did that, because they weren't paying them very much at all, you know, that he was worried that if they if they were able to drive themselves there, then they would try to escape and leave before the day's shoots was done. I I, I would watch a, a short about the Mortville Express. I feel like <laughs> yeah. that, that would be really. <laughs> it sounded pretty pretty per, like rough. Like there were just yeah. stinky <laughs> bums and people doing drugs on the bus. Because it was again, it was Pat Moran just just yep. scraping up any. Yep. Any weirdo on the street that she could find, <laughs> like the people you <laughs> that you normally see, and you're like, please don't talk to me. Like when you're walking down the street, you see that guy. Please don't don't yeah. make eye contact. And that's the people she was seeking out. There was a lot of stuff about Mortville I didn't understand. Like when he was explaining it on the com- commentary, there was like weird stuff, like the the setup for the pie. He was like, oh, this is my uh, simple Simon moment because, like, you know, you just feel stupid after you eat a pie and so like that's all they have to eat is all this pie and i'm like i like pie i don't know yeah. what he's talking about what's wrong with pie i don't know he, he did he but yeah he, he was describing that same thing he's like we drive them in with the bus because so they wouldn't wander away because they would and one time a bum shit his pants uh so he can just <laughs> stay on the bus <laughs> 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 and he's like, it's like, it makes sense because, you know, they couldn't use the bathroom facilities. The uh, yeah. owner got real sick of that. They didn't want them in the house. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's one of the many reasons that Mortville was not an easy place to shoot. Uh, for one, the temperature was n- never much higher than about 40 degrees, often much lower. Remember, that for some reason, John Waters always shoots his films in Baltimore in the like fall and winter. I don't know why he doesn't shoot in the summertime when it's warmer, but <laughs> so this, they're doing that again for like the third or fourth third film in a row at least i think they're shooting in the winter months and the farmhouse itself was off limits to everyone except for like the main stars like liz renee and susan lowe and all, all them could use the the farmhouse but all the extras and everyone else were, were not allowed so the extras had to find shelter from the cold by huddling together on the parked bus in between scenes and they were also not uh, like gary said they're not allowed to use the farmhouse for uh, for the restroom because the property's septic system overflowed uh, after the first couple of days because it wasn't able to hand uh, to handle the the amount of poop that was created by the dozens of cast and crew members who were using the facilities. So the homeowners forced them to use the woods until uh, they brought in a porta potty the next day for everyone to oh, use. So awesome. so for a day, everyone was having to shit in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so stupid. When, when when was the last time either of you pooped outside? Literally never in my life that I can recall. Are you serious? <laughs> I don't oh, think wow. I've ever. Why would I shit outside? I live in a home. This with is a, toilet. a this is this is the side of privilege. That's what that is. That is. Gary. I used to live out in the swampland in the woods, and uh, no, I, I shit outside multiple times in my childhood. I'm not. I, I, I'm not much. I've of an wiped my room. ass with, I've, I've, I've wiped my ass with leaves. So Ugh, one time my cousin leaves. shit on the train. My, my cousin shit on the train tracks and wiped his ass with rocks, and that I never understood. Oh, rocks on the train tracks. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> terrible. But, like the gravel yeah. that's under the train tracks, like that kind of a rock. Yeah, like those. Well, they were they were big rocks on the train track we had running through there. Those like I mean, he just like scraped your just head scraped his butthole across them. I guess he just like ran them up his Ugh. butt crack. It was just uh, wow. Rock. That sounds like a step closer to the demolition man future. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, like the underground people. I was like, like no, the no, they, with the, the evening no, no, wear no, that walk around. They use the, the seashells. Taco Bell. Yeah, yeah. They, they use, the use seashells, seashells for the for, yeah, instead of rocks. <laughs> they only get three. Yeah. three well, no, I've never pooped outside. Why would I shit outside? Yeah, there's never been like you've been, you know, oh my god, I have to go. It's it, no, it, you know. I will hold it until no. I get to a facility. <laughs> no, so with the, the the country, it's the the issue of you know out playing in the woods or something, and then you you're not going to run back to the house in time. It's it's coming now, and you got to do it. Yep. Well, I've I've never lived that far from civilization. I guess when <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, and I, if I was playing in the woods, they were like in the neighborhood, and I had if I had to poop. I was just it was a two minute run back to the house. I felt like my life was pretty okay back then. I never realized how close I was to working on the set of Mortville. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you didn't know you were a dreamlander back then. Uh, <laughs> Oh, man. So the weather also, while they were filming here, because this is all outdoors, remember, uh, that also, it just continued to be an issue. Uh, at one point, a heavy rain nearly washed all of Mortville away to the point where they were like, we've got to wrap this location up soon because we can't take another storm like this or our whole set's going to be gone. So it was just like mud. Everything's mud. Pieces of the house were falling off, you know, and they had to repair it because it's all made of cardboard and shit. You know, it, everything's made of trash. Uh, mm -hmm. When it came time to shoot the nudist camp scene, everyone was like, please, please let us have some warmer weather. But it's November and it's in Maryland, right? So they weren't holding out a whole lot of hope that it was going to be warmer that day. Uh, the temps that day did rise to like the mid thirties. So it was a little warmer than it had been on some previous days. Uh, but still, as soon as John yelled cut after, after a take the, uh, he would have assistants run in with, with blankets just to wrap up the actors, except there's just like this one old guy who just was fine. He's like in the background of some of the scenes. I think he doesn't have any speaking roles, but, uh, for some reason, that guy just wanted to walk around naked all day, even in between scenes. He just was, he just, to everyone's uh, horror, he just like walked around dong out all day, every day. Hey, <laughs> Why is that fair. to everybody's horror? That is like the the theme of this whole place. Well, yeah, <laughs> but they are playing characters, you know, but this guy was just, he just... You know, wanted to show it off, I guess. <laughs> have, have you seen that terrible man on set with, walking around with his penis exposed? Uh, hey, pass some of that dead rat over here, would you? Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Well, to, to, to make matters worse on, on set, the food sucked because, I mean, they don't have catering, obviously. They don't have professional caterers. And 
They uh, and and apparently nobody on the Dreamlander team was a very good cook. Uh, Liz Renee actually at one point commented that the food that she had in prison was better than what they were eating on the set there. <laughs> so, all right. So we've got we've got nowhere to use the bathroom, right? No heat, no good food. So I'm sure all the cast and crew are really looking forward to the second half of the shoot where they're going to be filming inside on interior sets uh, where everything's going to be great, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, sure. things on the interior sets were not a whole lot better. Yeah. So for, for those interior scenes, the production rented a big warehouse in Fells Point in uh, the neighborhood that we were talking about there in Baltimore. And this warehouse had no business being used for a film shoot. It was unheated. It was uninsulated. It only had one toilet, which most of the time did not work. And it was uh, parked on the corner of a busy intersection where 18-wheelers rattled by regularly. So uh, John Waters actually tells the story, or maybe it was Bob Mayer telling the story, where they would actually have to shoot scenes when the light was red at that intersection because they knew that they wouldn't have the sound of of big old trucks rattling by. So they'd have to try to shoot a scene during red lights uh, while they were in there. So during the shoot, you know, walking around this warehouse, there's, there always seems to be fake blood and guts everywhere. And, and because rabies, as you guys know, factors heavily into the plot, there were rats in cages just stashed everywhere around the set. So you're like, you're walking around, there's just gross blood and guts everywhere. And just, Cages full of rats. <laughs> this is not like a fun environment to work in. It was a super weird, very uncomfortable. But they, they did their best with what they had to work with. Inside this warehouse, Vince Peronio and his assistant, her name is Dolores Deluxe, she, they did their best to soundproof the building before constructing each individual set, which included the sets for uh, Flipper's Lesbian Bar, which is maybe my favorite set in the whole movie. I think it's, it's super fun the way they decorate it. Uh, you've got Queen Carlotta's throne room, which is very elaborate compared to what we've seen on all of these movies so far. Uh, the royal bedroom, Princess Cuckoo's chambers, Mole and Muffy's living room, their bedroom, and then the shack that Peggy and Griselda rent. That's all. All of those sets are being built inside of this warehouse. Have you ever heard a more perfect porn name than Dolores Deluxe? It's great. I think Dolores Deluxe was, uh, that's not her real name. Her real name is like Dolores Deluce, De I think. And Dolores Deluxe, I looked it up because she's done, she's an artist. Mm. Uh, that's like her, her pseudonym that she uses. But when you, when you Google Dolores Deluxe, there was like a, a chain of, of like, uh, I don't know if they were like convenience stores or like grocery stores or something called Dolores Deluxe. And I, I'm assuming that's where she took her name and not vice versa. I don't think they're naming themselves. <laughs> they're, they're, they're store after her. So her name was already Dolores Deluce. So she just named Dolores Deluxe from this chain of stores. I, I'm, I'm guessing. Because right. <laughs> I tried to find out more about her just because her name was so intriguing to me. Yeah. So I, yeah. my, so I just googled Dolores Deluxe, and I'm like, oh, there's a store called that. There's a bunch of stores called that, apparently. Huh. No, it makes sense. Like, porn has a history of, uh, and still to this day, actresses and actors are going to give themselves names that are uh, relative to like something that you would know very well. And so, I don't like know, Diana it, Prince. It, yeah, exactly. People don't realize this, but porn has always been very SEO friendly. <laughs> <laughs> a little pro, a little pro tip there. 
Well, as the shoot went on, it began to take a mental toll on the casting crew. The shooting schedule was so relentless that some of the cast members started to go a little bit crazy while they were shooting. You remember, you, you know how on the previous John Waters movies, they were kind of shooting just on, you know, like on weekends over several, several months at a time. You know, they'd shoot yeah. for three months or six months or whatever and only shoot on like Friday, Saturday, Sunday because everyone had their jobs during the week. Uh, Desperate Living wasn't like that. Desperate Living was more like a regular film shoot where they just shot it all the way through. But it was a very mm. relentless schedule. It was a very quick shoot. So everyone's like just getting exhausted by it. And at one point, Jean Hill became so out of her mind with fatigue. Uh, and, and when I describe this, you'll probably remember the scene. But she uh, she picks up an actor and threw him into a wall. Uh, it's a, one of the actors playing one of the, the leather daddy army guys that work for Queen Carlotta when they come in to, to capture them. She throws him into a wall. And when they filmed that scene, she actually threw him into a wall and knocked him unconscious. I mean, this is supposed to be a simulated fight scene, but she was so just like tired and stuff that she didn't pull her punches, so to speak, and yeah. literally threw a dude into a wall and knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> So Liz Renee, not being used to, I guess, the shenanigans that usually go on during the filming of a John Waters movie, because she's not a seasoned dreamlander, you know, she got a little mm. bit grossed out a couple of times during the shoot. Uh, she started gagging during a scene where Susan Lowe had to pick up the dead rat and begin cooking it for dinner. You know, when she gets all like really happy that they found a, a rat in their house. Uh, yeah. So she kind of gross, gets grossed out during that. And then she had a similar reaction uh, later on in the movie in the scene where Mary Vivian Pierce starts foaming at the mouth from rabies, uh, mm. where she's just got this green, gross looking foam coming out of her mouth, which is a very simple effect that they achieved just by mixing some Alka-Seltzer and green food coloring and just had her put that in her mouth. And that's, that's where they got that. But I guess just maybe she was in the moment. Maybe Liz Renee was just very uh, method during the mm. scene and she yeah. just got very into it. But, uh, but that kind of grossed her out. She started gagging a little bit. Uh, at one point during the shoot, they had a newspaper reporter show up. I think he was from the Baltimore sun. He's, he was going to do a story about the making of the film and, you know, Susan Lowe, she found out that a reporter was coming and she was, at first, she was pretty excited about this. After all, this was her first starring role, you know? She was going to get yeah. some press in her first starring role, but then she was horrified, or I guess mortified, maybe is the better description, ah, uh, when the writer showed up just as the special effects guy was attaching a fake penis, ugly scars, and fake blood between her legs. That's the day that the reporter decided to show up. <laughs> so she so she wasn't very happy about that. She got a little upset, but uh, for another scene, another little antidote about the filming here, uh, the scene where Mink Stoll and Gene Hill are forced to eat cockroaches. Uh, they were understandably nervous. After all, Mink had seen her friend Divine eat you know, literal dog shit on one of John's films. So they were worried that John might ask them to actually eat cockroaches. Well, when they asked Waters about it, he replied, this is a quote, he says, no, I guess in my old age, I've gotten more conservative. So instead, he used real roaches in the close-up shots, uh, you see them in the film, but in the long shot where they're actually eating them, he just, they're just raisins, they're just eating raisins, and that the guy's like shoveling raisins into their mouth. So no, they did not eat roaches, but that cockroach scene was probably the least of their worries, because there are a couple of other scenes that they had to film that were <laughs> even worse. Uh, so for one of these, uh, I'd like to point out that, that for this scene, there's a scene in the film where Mink Stoll runs over a dead dog. Uh, now, the dog looks fake, but it's not. It's a real dog. 
But I would, would do want to point out that John Waters did not kill a dog <laughs> for the making of this movie. I know that's a weird thing to have to point out, but considering some conversations we've had on previous episodes, considering some, uh, let's say, questionable scenes involving animals and some of these other films, uh, that, that might be something that we need to point out. But John Waters is, in fact, not a cruel man. Only to his audience. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> For the dog in question, Waters asked Vince Peranio to get a dead dog from a nearby veterinary hospital where they conducted experiments. I don't know what kind of experiments. I just have read in multiple places that they did experiments or tests there. I don't. That's all I know. But anyway, they had a dead dog. So the dog came to them frozen, which I guess is good. But Susan Lowe was nice enough to let them thaw the dog in her backyard. <laughs> well, to answer your uh, comment there, uh, it was actually from John's. Johns Hopkins is where the dog was from. Uh, okay. I believe we, Did we they have a veterinary that. hospital at Johns Hopkins? Or? Yeah, they had like a animal research section at Johns Hopkins. And I believe we mentioned before that Vincent Piranha used to work at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, ended up getting fired for his long hair. Uh, but he got... <laughs> Uh, he got it illegally from their research department and they do not go down that rabbit hole because like PETA has like exposed them over the past several years. <laughs> like, oh, just wow. The awful things they would do to animals. Uh, oh, but yeah. And although they tried, it did not fully thaw by the time Mink had to run it over on the first take. Yes, there was. Well, it's also probably one. got some rigor mortis going on there too, right? Mm. Yeah, and the first time that she hit it, it got sucked up into the axle of the car, and so then they had to spend a long time pulling parts out of the car so they could put it back together to do another take. Yeah, You know, basically John Waters, he loads the dog in his trunk, and so he drives to the shooting location with this dead dog in his trunk, and then they laid it out on the road, and at first Mink kept missing it. Uh, it was probably, I mean, I probably would too. Like I would have a hard time doing that on cue. Like it would freak me out. So she kept missing it. Uh, but yeah, she finally got it after several tries, but John said it did not read well on film, which I guess if it getting sucked up into the axle, it's not going to read as, as well. <laughs> he wants to see the the flop of it, I guess. I don't know. So yeah, they had to, to scrape it up and do it all over again. But thankfully after uh, the next try, they were able to get it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm glad my wife did not watch this one with me. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned it to me the other night where you're like, well, I might see if Jennifer wants to watch it tonight. And I almost just flat out said, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no. not, and not necessarily even because of this scene. Because, again, the, you don't see the, any, the, the dog die or anything. It's a, it's a dog that they essentially found already dead. But it is gross. But there are far more off-putting scenes in this film than that one i think it's it's really it, it really is you know it's funny to think about john waters last movie trying to get away from having to outdo himself on eating dog shit but it does still feel like he is still trying to outdo himself he is a little bit yeah yeah he's still he's still trying to shock for sure so after they finally shot this scene, uh, Waters wrapped the dog up and and uh, like in a trash bag or sheets or something, and he started wandering in the woods to bury it. He, he said he felt like a like a murderer that was he was terrified that somebody would see him walking through the woods with a dead body or what they what was I mean it essentially was a dead body, um, 
think you know thinking that he was a murderer trying to bury a dead body and then they would find his car where there was blood in the trunk from when he transported the dog from susan lowe's house so he was the whole time he's like running around the woods with a essentially a corpse just terrified that somebody's gonna think he's some kind of psychopath <laughs> but the uh the according to waters the most disgusting thing that they had to shoot for the film was actually the opening title sequence which does contain an actual cooked rat now i do not know where they got the rat um, I, I cannot tell you that they got the rat from Johns Hopkins. Uh, dead rats are probably pretty easy to find, especially in Fells Point from all of the descriptions that I've heard of that neighborhood. They definitely, in the com- in the commentary, Water says, this is a real street rat we just found. Like We just found alley. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, it was fine to, when it was time to film this scene, nobody would let them use their oven to cook the rat. And I guess Waters didn't want to use his own oven and who can blame him. So he ended up suggesting to Peranio and Alan Rose, who uh, Alan Rose is the guy who's designed all of Waters' credit sequences. He suggested to them that they sneak into one of their enemy's houses to cook the rat when he wasn't home. And no, I have no idea who this unnamed enemy was. That's just what John Waters just says, one of our enemies. And they did manage to pull it off uh, without getting caught. And their only comment was, boy, did it stink. <laughs> Yeah, all right. So let's, it, let's take some guesses. Let's take some guesses at who the enemy was. Come on. It was divine. <laughs> my first thought was Mary of Mary Avara, the the lead of the lady who was in charge of the censor board. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. But yeah, I have no uh, idea. Yeah, because my first thought was like, oh well, the critics, and I was just like, no, they've given him some of the best quotes for his. Posters. Yeah, like even like, Lucid Drone, who right, who, who's given him all these negative reviews from the Baltimore Sun. Like Waters loves those negative reviews. Like he yeah, thinks they're great. Yeah. <laughs> not uh, to not to ruin it, uh, so the the you know because this is fun, but for for accuracy's sake, for anybody who's going to call us out on it, he does say in the commentary he does describe it more as. They were renting a loft for some of this filming in Fells Point from someone that they didn't particularly get along with, and that's where they actually cooked the rest. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with Waters, when you read like his book and things like that, he's definitely a print-the-legend kind of guy. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, you know. He he does yeah. like to embellish, and he's a, he's a storyteller, and sometimes that might mean embellishing some of the facts a little bit. Like I, I just found out from an interview I was reading yesterday. You know, we talked about Mona Montgomery, his first like his girlfriend, who they would go shoplift and things like that with. And Mona's the one who caught she, they broke up when he, they caught him in bed with a man in their apartment or whatever. Uh, mm. And that's how she found out he was gay. But I read an interview yesterday that Mona, and he never mentions this in, in shock value. He just talks about her normally. But Mona Montgomery wasn't even her name. Mona Montgomery was just a name he made up. It was a pseudonym. And he never even mentions in shock value that that's a pseudonym. Uh, but in a later interview from like the late 90s, he's like, yeah, I called her Mona Montgomery in the book because I don't know where she is now. And I didn't want to just use her real name, which you know is admirable. But in shock value, he never gives any indication that that was not actually just who what her actual name was. He was just telling a story, you know. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I have some some other random fun facts that have nothing to do with any of the story so far. But I just wanted to throw them in there from places like the commentary um yeah the uh this is the first movie that john waters did with a complete classical score he says mm-hmm. it was uh two local people chris lobinger and alan yaris uh, yeah Cr- like chris a- lobinger and alan uh alan yaris they worked for the university of maryland same place where you know 
where Bob Mayer had worked. And, you know, on, on his previous films, Waters had always used existing songs, didn't really have a score. He just mm. used songs from his record collection, usually without getting the rights to them. But on Desperate Living, he wanted original music, and specifically he wanted a what he called a cheesy Dr. Zhivago-type score. So uh, somehow he got in touch with these two guys from the university who were like in the in the music department and had them score it for him. Hmm. It's interesting. He has some relationship with that. The, the three backers for this movie, they were listed as the producers. And one of these is interesting, and I'll tell you why in a second to me at least but uh he mentions william platt who he calls his camp counselor david spencer his dearest and oldest friend and james mckenzie who uh ran company cinema tech at the university of baltimore who he said was the guy who always fought the censors with him every single time william platt is the camp counselor i don't know why he's calling him the camp counselor unless he really was his camp counselor which is interesting because there's also many john waters interviews where he talks about getting his first gay hand job when he was sent away to camp <laughs> and it was from a counselor and i'm like oh, wow did you just did you or we just expose William Platt as the guy who, <laughs> who uh, jerked you off at you summer off. camp <laughs> right um, wow. but anyway uh i digress uh, i just thought it was interesting to mention those that whole opening scene just for people who care about that kind of thing i mean uh this was at john waters you know his his home or his parents home where he grew up uh the yard where those kids are playing baseball in is like that exact area he said is exactly where the cavalcade of perversion was from that front yard yeah yeah and uh he said that that was his parents bedroom where uh mink is in and yelling from he said his mom let him break that antique glass window he still can't believe it to this day (laughs) and uh and he said, it's not decorated. That is exactly what his parents' bedroom looked like. And uh, when Griselda <laughs> murders Bosley with her ass, uh, that is right next to his parents' bed, which he says he wonders what a psychiatrist would have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing, uh, oh, oh, the the call she gets where it's like a wrong number. And he says, and she says, like, how will you ever repay the last 30 seconds of my life? Uh, he says that that's what he says every time somebody calls him that's a wrong number or something. That's like <laughs> his favorite thing to say. Um, I I was watching this one, and one thing that caught my attention, and he actually addressed it in this, is that I was like, you know the thing about John Waters movies sometimes is they're like community theater or something is getting filmed, like with mm-hmm. just the way they talk and express themselves and stuff like that. He actually addresses it in the commentary and says... The way he puts it is like, this is my last movie with ranting, screaming, and raving. Hmm. Uh, he said, I, I don't, he was like, that's something that was definitely influenced by theater, which I was more interested in at the time. He's like, that I'm not, it doesn't influence me anymore, but uh, really, but he says from here on, he was like, I, I think I get away from that, but that's definitely a style that we were using for sure. And yeah. uh, I just thought that was interesting that he kind of pointed it out. Yeah, he knows. Uh, yeah, that he knows. I, I wanted to point out that uh, we didn't get away from uh, Charles Manson. There's a portrait of Charles Manson. Uh, and yeah, Queen and Queen Carlotta. It's Charles Manson, then there's a portrait of Hitler, and then one other person who I could not place. Do you know who that third it's one Edie is? It's Amin, who was like okay. a, uh, from uh, Uganda, I think. is where okay. He was like a dictator there. Like a dictator? Uh, okay. Yeah, Uganda dictator. What point Muffy screams squeaky frob? Where are you when we yep. need you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's another Manson reference. Frob. 
Yeah, know? that was a Manson person. The one that tried to assassinate Gerald Ford in 1975. The other thing I wanted to mention is the dead bum at the beginning uh, when they first find their uh, apartment that they're going to stay in. Uh, Meek and yeah. or Griselda. Actual, actual dead uh, body? Yeah, actual dead body. They got <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was uh they got it frozen. They got it frozen from John Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh Pat Moran's father-in-law. And oh. uh he just agreed to come <laughs> they in. They just killed him. <laughs> he, no, he had died he two not, days he was, before. <laughs> he was not really dead, but he made a point to on the commentary. He was like, literally, just the other day, he apparently asked Pat, did that John ever get a job? <laughs> did that john ever get a job i love it you'll also be happy to know that no actual wrestlers or wrestling moves were harmed in the making of this <laughs> you mean so, they didn't bring in they didn't bring in some consultants to teach them how to actually wrestle so far as i know the high heel to the eyeball is yet to be used no, but thank yet. you mr waters Thank you, Mr. Waters. It was only a matter of time until I was subjected to harsh eyeball violence. Yep. I'd almost be disappointed <laughs> if it didn't happen at some point. Harry does not. Um, uh, man, uh, Susan Lowe's outfit in that uh, with the, the the toothy vagina on the front of it, that's some of some of Vance Smith's uh, best work, I think. <laughs> thing is- the, the line that Queen Carlotta says where like he tell, she tells him to take them in front of the ugly, what is it, the ugly brigade or something? I can't remember something what the like line that, is. Yeah, yeah. yeah like but that. it came from a review that, and somebody had said that about Van Smith's work that he must be a part of the ugly brigade or something. It was something like that. <laughs> uh, but no, I was going to point out that I did uh, an interesting rabbit hole. I did go down curious about the wrestling scene. Uh, John Waters is a wrestling fan. So oh, yeah. He, yeah, he actually uh, was interviewed for the autobiography uh, for wrestling uh, legend Gorgeous George and yeah. says that Gorgeous George was a huge influence on him as a kid and divine uh, huh. for the look and their style and their overall attitude. I can see uh, that. He says he was spellbound by Gorgeous George on TV as a kid. Uh, what he, he was what he called, uh, quote, an apparition of queeniness. he he said all at the same time his parents and friends would be yelling insults at this lacy freak who love who they love to hate but ended up just loving and uh, (laughs) supposedly gorgeous george picture still on his bedroom wall to this day i love it i love that (laughs) i mean gorgeous george is has that very like high camp thing that that john waters does you know so that that honestly makes a lot of sense i would not peg him as a wrestling fan because everything i've heard about him he like abhors sports in general but i guess wrestling is more on the entertainment side of things than than what he considers a sport you know because it's very theatrical and you know that that makes sense so once filming had wrapped uh waters and charles ruggiero who was the editor he'd worked with on female trouble they spent 10 weeks editing the film in ruggiero's basement and then once post-production was complete, Water set about planning his big sneak world premiere, which would once again be held in a rented theater at the University of Baltimore. Oh, and the censor board. We haven't talked about them yet on this episode, but for the first time on a Waters film, they were not an issue at all. This is the first time ever he hasn't had to battle the censor board. Uh, he had uh, actually planned to invade their offices 
and have the cast of Desperate Living chain themselves to the furniture, refusing to leave until an uncut version of the film was approved. This is all for publicity. He And they were on board. Like, Gene Hill was on board. He's like, as long as... He's like, I will pay your bail if you do this. It was all just for a photo op, you know, because he knows he knows how even, you know, all publicity is good publicity. You know, we, he's proven that on every film so far. Mm. But just before their scheduled screening of the film the newly elected Maryland governor officially disbanded the censor board. So it no longer exists. This happens like days before uh, they're supposed to have their desperate living go before the censor board. The governor uh, cuts the censor board and, and disbands it forever. So the wow. last censor board in the country gets disbanded right before desperate living gets sent to him. Because I can imagine that Mary Avara would have had plenty of issues with yeah. this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to think of what she could have possibly found. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so prior to the film's premiere, the Baltimore Sun created a lot of advanced interest in it by putting a group shot of the entire cast and crew on the cover and running an article on the making of the film, which said, Walter cultivates sleaze like a rare orchid. He is to Baltimore what Ingmar Bergman was to Sweden, which I am sure he absolutely loved that quote uh, to promote the screening. Yeah. Cause he's a, he's a Bergman fan for one thing, but also to be compared to him and to say cultivate sleaze like a rare orchid. That's a great turn of phrase. Anyway, you know, that's, mm. that's uh, that's a turn of phrase that John Waters would appreciate. Reviewers were a different breed. Uh, they were early on. They were. Uh, to promote the screening, the Dreamlanders once again circulated flyers all around town and the hometown premiere was once again, a huge success even if some of the local critics were still not fans of Waters or his films, uh, Lucid Drone, who we, we've already mentioned on this episode, but we've mentioned him on pretty, I think, all of these episodes so far. He was a critic for the Baltimore Evening Sun. Uh, he wrote, uh, Waters is a little bent. No, he's twisted, maybe even broken. If you are amused by vomit, blood, cannibalism, cruelty to children, and rats served as dinner, you may want to see the film. It would be fun as low, low camp if it wasn't so sick. R.H. Gardner, writing for The Sun, another Baltimore paper there, The Baltimore Sun, said, Personally, the most charming and inoffensive of men, John Waters specializes in works of an unbelievably gross and offensive nature. No other contemporary filmmaker has presented the human race in so disgusting a light. Waters' characters are not simply hideous, they affront the soul. They exude the aroma of outside toilets. They achieve a grotesqueness for which the adjective repulsive leaves something to be desired. And yet Baltimoreans flock to see the film. And I don't doubt the same thing will happen in New York. The question mm. is why? Hey, I asked that same question last week. <laughs> why? Why is this happening? <laughs> Poor Todd. Oh. Todd's going to be uh, traumatized by the end of this series. <laughs> I feel like I saw you put on your letterbox review that you couldn't wait to just see what Todd it. Why? Yeah, how yeah, Todd yeah. Felt after watching <laughs> how much Todd hated this movie. <laughs> oh, so, uh, uh, so those are some of the local reviews that that the film received there in Baltimore. Uh, I am curious though how uh, how reviewers on the internet have treated it. Hmm. It's John Waters, and people watched it. So you know some of them need a nap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say, for Desperate Living, it is not nearly... Uh, it, is, it is probably because this is one of the harder ones to find, uh, but the, 
it's not it's not the one you hear mentioned ever with John Waters, and I'm sure we'll talk about all that. But it's uh, there were not as many reviews, like just legitimately. Well, yeah, I was about to say there's probably less reviews in general because less people have seen it in general than some of his other films because of its availability. Yeah, and so um, I, honestly, I got through looking at the one stars pretty quick. I think I even skipped into like one and a half star territory for this guy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, what? or maybe it's just a better film. Or whoa, that is that is a thing. <laughs> that is a logical assumption of a thing that could happen. What? <laughs> <laughs> Gonna be quick and easy since they're less than normal, but I think I got some good ones here. How about uh, one star from Xavier, who says, "One more filthy movie from John Waters' perverted mind. It's the most trashy with mediocre acting, cheap cardboard settings." Most unrealistic fairy tale like story and bizarre situations degrading of humans. I failed to see the art involved here, and for me, it was a waste of time and my hard earned money. Straight to the point, Xavier. Well done. At least he finished it. Yeah, I like it. He, he went right through the whole movie, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, Zuki here, one star, says in their review, one star for the kid in the fridge. <laughs> 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 yeah, John, John Water. John Water said that the, the casting the kid in the fridge was one of the hardest casting things he had to do because he had to find somebody who would allow their kid to be put in the fridge. <laughs> he, he he was like a kid of a friend, you know. Uh, but they did two takes, and basically they just right before the cameras rolled, they shut the fridge, and then Liz and Ape opened the fridge and you know caught him on the way out. And so the kid, you can see the kid freaking out in the movie but i don't think they traumatized him or anything like the kid's fine <laughs> but a lot of people accused him of like child you know cruelty or whatever because they put the kid in the fridge but it's not like they were keeping the kid in the fridge the whole time <laughs> like the kid was in there for two <laughs> seconds before the cameras rolled and then then he was out so it was just enough to shoot the scene but nothing more serious than that i had to think that the, the kid was not an actor though so i was like him freaking out is real that's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he he was not playing a role. Uh, he was he was crying, but he's he's not he's not like in therapy because of it now, presumably. You, uh, yeah, you know. I was gonna say. <laughs> I don't know. They might harbor harbor some resentment for their parent who was just like, yeah, put him in there. We do some and, pretty thorough research. That is unconfirmed. <laughs> and especially if you were upset about it, finding out that wasn't the first take. <laughs> yeah, that was, well, that was take two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sean McGowan gave it a star and said, I told Marie this is upsetting after just about every scene, but I was actually doing fine until Bolt cut her dick off. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is, that seems ridiculous. I guess if you, if it were more realistic looking or something, I guess, but it, it's not. So it doesn't really bother me that much other than like in the context of it's someone cutting their own dick off i guess but uh it's the it's not the most disturbing thing in the film in my opinion i'm with you i'm with you i, th I think there was worse i was expecting worse yeah uh, when i saw it start to go in and then i was like the close-up i'm like good on you for a close-up of this but yeah, <laughs> not very no not at all but at least they didn't shy away brian gave it a star and says Mink Stoll's breakdown at the beginning of this made me laugh. Unfortunately, 
It was the last laugh I'd have for the entire film. Having now completely deadened my brain by watching two of these back-to-back, I offered the following commentary on why I really don't like John Waters' movies in general. It isn't just that they're disgusting. They are, but I think he'd take that reaction as a compliment. It's that he sees the world as so thoroughly horrible that the only thing you can do is laugh at it. He imagines these truly terrible, despicable people who do awful things to their fellow man and says, look, isn't this funny? I don't think the world is nearly as irredeemable as John Waters does, and I just can't find most of the horrible things he finds funny to be funny. They're tragic and depressing and do nothing but make me feel unclean while I watch them. That's a, that was a pre- pretty well-written review. These are pretty well-written yeah. for, for what are these letterboxed reviews? Uh, that one was actually for IMDb. IMDb, wow. Wow. I mean, I don't yeah. agree with them, but uh, I mean, I guess I... I, I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you hear John Waters talk as a human being in interviews, he doesn't seem like that that's his outlook on life. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. I just didn't know how to articulate it. <laughs> uh, Cake Kitty 69 gave it one star. <laughs> and says it's like a homeless camp took acid stole some props from a high school's production of hairspray and then made a campy ass porno this was a rough 90 minutes the outfits are rad though (laughs) like the idea that they're ripping off another john waters movie is what they're saying but that doesn't exist yet yeah (laughs) yeah uh, I will say that he did comment on like uh, you, you were talking about Mole's outfit and like where they found all the stuff in the trash or whatever. Uh, he does like during the commentary, he points out he's like, Mole, oh gosh, he looks awful. But that outfit would be worth like $5,000 now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And we'll go to the final one that I have here. And this, this person needs a nap for sure. They seem very miserable about this. Desperate Living has got to be the most horrible, sickening, disturbing piece of shit I've ever seen. First, the freaks, calling them freaks instead of people. It's a lot more accurate. In this movie, don't just talk to each other. They shriek and yell continuously. Second, none of the sex in this film has any love or nice arousal to it. It's all sick and perverted. Then comes the very worst of all. Third, a man actually starts cutting off his penis and we see him doing it close up. Fourth. The fat bitch queen who is ugly and cruel throughout the movie actually gets cooked in a big oven and we see her being carried out all cooked on a whole large platter. Her face still visible in all cooked form. And the other movie characters call this their big celebrated roast. I have never seen anything like this in my life. This is not a movie. It's over an hour of the sickest sickest most demented shit that would only be of desire to someone whose mind is disturbed and worst of all i cannot believe how many people gave this horrible sick shit great reviews like eight stars out of ten i've seen so many more bad ugly reviews for all those wonderful sweet 1940s musicals till the clouds roll by which a lot of people called saccharine and annoyingly sickly sweet that i have for this sick disturbing trash that says just something right there about the mentality of people in today's society. People are a different species in the 21st century than they were in the 30s through the 50s. That's, that's got big old man yells at cloud energy going on there. <laughs> <laughs> An old man need naps, Justin. 
<laughs> wow. So uh, imagine the most offensive thing in this movie to you being the the Queen Carlotta cooked into like a turkey at the end of this. Like of everything in this movie, <laughs> that's the thing that you take so much offense to. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying we should cook people into turkeys in real life, but it's it's completely cartoonish and ridiculous in the movie. So for that to be the thing that you want to like zero in on, it's like, man, have you, like Bugs Bunny did that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's silly. For what it's worth, he does mention the uh, dick cutoff scene. So, well, yeah, but he does it almost in passing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that wasn't as big of a deal. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so just like Female Trouble had, Desperate Living opened in New York, where New Line booked it in two theaters in Manhattan. Uh, now, for what it's worth, I think we should say that New New Line was fully behind this film from a marketing standpoint, despite the fact that Female Trouble had been a, a lesser hit than they had hoped. Uh, in New York, they even put together an invitation-only screening of Desperate Living for critics and celebrities, hoping to garner up some buzz for it. Uh, but that didn't quite go as planned. According to Waters, the critics for Good Housekeeping walked out within the first 10 minutes. Now, why you would invite the critics from Good Housekeeping to Desperate Living, I don't know. I don't know what they were expecting, but uh, that doesn't seem like a great idea. They were uh, the looking York- for some desperate housewives. Oh. Hey. <laughs> That's a callback. I hate that this uh, rounded out. Yeah, for that callback. <laughs> just- <laughs> the, uh, the New York Times, who was also in attendance, was pretty curt in their review, saying, You could look far and wide to find a more pointlessly ugly movie than John Waters' Desperate Living, but why would you bother? This one more than takes the cake and regurgitates it in close-up, which is fucking fantastic. (laughs) That's a fantastic review. (laughs) Playboy, uh, however, Playboy actually gave it a positive review, uh, which said that the movie had to be seen to be believed. Is that positive? I mean, yeah, sure it is. Okay, all right. (laughs) They're telling you you Uh, need to see it. You have to see it or... You will believe it, right? It, they're like nothing. Nothing we can say. Precursor of like you might not believe it. If well, you it's don't, just like this. This movie is. It. You could say this movie is like so good that I can't even describe it. You have. You just have to see it. <laughs> so okay. you, it, that can be used right. in a positive way. Okay. All right. Uh, Tom Allen, writing for the Village Voice, said, "I dare really? anyone." <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> I was just waiting for one of y'all to do that, honestly. Uh, so Tom Allen said, I dare anyone not to take John Waters seriously after Desperate Living. This film is a triumphant example of the most vital bad taste in America. David Shute, writing for the Boston Phoenix, wrote, In Desperate Living, Waters comes close to creating a work of true trash art. So clearly, like the the movie isn't like it isn't for everyone. Obviously, it has people who are very big fans. There are some people, in fact, that like like uh, there are a lot of like hardcore John Waters fans who would consider Desperate Living their favorite John Waters movie. Uh, but it is clearly a, a movie that is only for particular tastes. So I guess my question now for the two of you, since I know this was the first time either of you had seen this movie, yeah. uh, what did you think of Desperate Living? Gary, do you want to go first? <laughs> uh, sure. I'll just say <laughs> that for me, I I think this is a step back for me from Female Trouble. Um, I, I still think Female Trouble is 
the best John Waters movie so far. At this point, I don't think anything shocked me in this movie necessarily. I, yeah. I, I think the actors are continuing to improve as actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even think about uh, Edie not moving around as much until I saw people talking about it. So I, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, she's getting better. So maybe she is. Maybe she'll walk in the next one. And uh, <laughs> so. it's weird because I can't, I, I, I don't know why I can't put my finger on it exactly. Cause I don't want to just say it's lack of divine or something, but it felt like there was more substance to female trouble than this one. And this one just felt more just, I guess, a a couple of movies back. Like, we were um, just trying to shock, and there was less, I don't know, yeah, depth to it, I guess. Although, I know that he had intentions on what he was criticizing and satirizing, you know, authoritarianism and all of that stuff. But it, it just... I don't know. It just it, it felt a little flatter to me than the last one. So I was kind of bummed about that part. Yeah, I, uh, I, I yeah, I'd agree with that of of what we've seen from John Waters so far. You know, uh, my opinion, it this wasn't this wasn't the best of what we've seen so far. I would be hard pressed to put to rank the films that we've watched in this series so far based on my personal preferences you know i even said it at the top of the show where uh waters described it its target audience is neurotic adults with the mentalities of eight-year-olds you know uh dealing with mental anguish penis envy political corruption uh all of that stuff a monstrous fairy tale comedy like i mean okay that kind of makes sense i guess and you know i clearly i'm not in this target audience so I guess there's a reason it doesn't directly speak to me that much. Um, but I think, you know, because Justin, you've you've done an amazing job here of curating and distilling down for us from multiple sources, things that John Waters has written over the years, things that have been written about John Waters over the years. And I think looking at this is, I'm going to go, this is a little bit of a weird comparison, but hang with me for a second. It made me think of uh, Alan Moore's Watchmen and the reason he wrote Watchmen the way that he did was because he wanted to show what was doable on the comic page as opposed to film or television. Mm -hmm. Now, when Zack Snyder made his film version and stayed very, very true to that script, you know, the, you know, the debate about whether or not it's good or bad or whatever, but when they are reading quite literally reading the lines from the book, it doesn't quite sound right. And I think that might be, I mean, maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but maybe there's something that's not necessarily translating from the written word to screen. I mean, we've already discussed like the actors are not the best. They're not, you know, classically trained actors or anything, but like there's something that may not be trans, uh, you know, making well, I that think transition that, over. I think that that would, uh, that would assume that John Waters is going for realism here, which he absolutely isn't. He hasn't gone for realism really in any of his films. Uh, and his, his films from here on out will become even more and more stylized because he can afford to stylize them more. He's going for a non, a a real non reality in all of these movies. So I don't think that 
John Waters dialogue is meant to be taken as like any realistic in any way whatsoever. I mean, it is very stylized, very grandiose. I will say I've noticed that sometimes John Waters dialogue, like I could hear him saying it like Mm -hmm. as actors are repeating the lines, but they're not repeating it the same way. I feel like John Waters meant it like, right. Well, I'm trying to think of an example, but there was one line in, in this movie. I remember where they were like, you know, you're doing this and such or something. And they said it just like that, but you could tell John Waters meant it in a different way. And it's weird that it made the final cut that that's. So here's one thing. I mean, it's not a secret that, you know, for my contributions to what we're doing here, I, I typically pull from quotes from the movie. I got more laughs. uh, You know, it elicited more laughs of me reading the quotes than I did watching the movie. And I feel like, I mean, we've, we've heard, uh, Justin, you told us stories about, you know, people who, uh, Liz, not a trained actor, but she laughed through the entire script reading and like, so it, it hits differently reading it on the page than it does watching it on screen. There's, there's something to that. I, you know, I mean, this came to me earlier. I'm not, it's more of a, it's more of a, I wonder it's, I wonder if this is why, I mean, cause I mean, clearly this movie didn't do as well. I mean, yeah, it lacked divine, but like there's something in it that just didn't really click for folks. It seems like, yeah, I'm not sure what, what that was exactly. I mean, by, by most measures, desperate living is water's least successful film. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only was it the only one he made without divine uh, during divine's lifetime, but it seems like the movie does. I mean, granted, you could say this about pink flamingos as well, probably more so than female trouble, but it seems tailor made to offend anyone who watches it at some point during its 90 minute runtime, uh, because dear with desperate living, I feel like waters took the violence and sheer kind of grossness of his other films to a whole new level. Uh, it's a movie, you know, it starts with someone carving up a rat on fine China, like right yeah. out, right out of the gate, you know, here we are. Then over the course of the film, we see, you know, an eyeball getting, getting gouged out with a stiletto. We see mm. a woman stopped being smothered and, and stomped on after he squished. And then a woman gets smothered in a bowl of wet dog food. You see, you know, mink cut off their, their own dick with a pair of scissors. I think it was. And then there are, and there are also something that's not in his other films. So there are several sex scenes that are, well, let's say regrettable <laughs> to anyone who has watched them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you were young and you were trying to find like, uh, well, you know, I for a person my age, they you could watch a scrambled cable channel and, and right, right, to, yeah. Like I think I saw a titty. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so, like any movie that had that had anything like uh, a moment of sexiness, you could you could use that for spank bank time. And I try, I thought of that while I was. I was watching this and I'm like, they are not letting you have that with Liz Renee. No, yeah, they are no, gonna, no, no. <laughs> they're gonna swap these scenes in and out. Yeah, yeah. You're I gonna mean, see some wallering between a lot granted, of I mean, people. you know, Liz Renee's even at 50 some odd years old here, she's a very attractive woman. And you know, but she, you know, the, the scenes that we see her in even are like they're they're not sexy scenes, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. you've got the scene with Mink and with Mink and Gene Hill, uh, which Mink was apparently very nervous during that scene because she was a, a very professional. She was had no issue with the content. She was just actually worried that 
Gene Hill was going to squish her and smother her to death. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to say that the more I sat here and thought about this, like, I I was like, I don't think it's divide, but then I think there is a part of it that is divide for me. It's really weird. I feel like when we started multiple maniacs that there was a, there's a jarring experience going from normal movies into John Waters movies. And then you start to get used to the way that John Waters movies are. And Mm -hmm. then it feels like divide has been a huge part of that. Divide might be the best delivering. I think everything in the way that you imagine John Waters wants it delivered or what he's. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And so then you get to this movie and it doesn't have divide. I think there is a little something missing without having divide in this movie. Yeah, I I would not argue that. Yeah, because I, I, I watched Crybaby, right? But I don't think I thought about Divine that much during, like, say, Crybaby. But then it also also doesn't feel like any of these movies. And no, so, no, and, and and like he, he does continuously get away from. I mean, this is his last movie where he's going to be the 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 gross shock king. You know, this this is the last one where that's what he's going for. Uh, then he moves further and further into the mainstream. Well, I mean, I guess that kind of peaks with Hairspray. Uh, and then, but his movies after Hairspray or even, I mean, Crybaby, for instance, you know, it stars Johnny Depp. <laughs> so it's not, it's, it's far, it's a far cry from what he's doing with Desperate Living here. But, you know, Pink Flamingos of, of John Waters films, I feel like has the biggest reputation of being kind of nasty and just gross. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would argue that Desperate Living is the nastier between the two films. I, but I would also agree. I would also argue that Desperate Living is the funnier of the two films. Uh, I think that he has grown as a writer. I think that he has gotten funnier. I still, I still think Female Trouble is is the funniest one that we've done so far. But Desperate Living is is pretty funny if you're into John Waters' very dark, very twisted sense of humor, which I am. But it's also easily the most ambitious film from this period of his career whereas you know all of his other films have kind of just focused on a handful of characters uh don davenport and her friends or or uh, divine and and her family and pink flamingos this one focuses on an entire society like the scope of the storytelling here is is much much bigger than what he's done in the past now granted he doesn't quite still have the budget and the resources to pull off a story as big as what he's trying to tell. So it still feels small at points, you Mm. know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but it is, it is a bigger story. And, you know, with me watching this one, I had never watched, this is one that I had never seen before. So I'd never seen desperate living before watching it for this. I've watched it a couple times this week and uh, watching it. Now I realize, well, for one, John waters is most, it's not someone that most people view as a political filmmaker. Uh, but we have already talked about how his films do purposely push back against the status quo. I mean, we talked about that in Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. That is a political statement in itself. But a lot of those films, uh, well, the, the two that I just mentioned, Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, these really are, even if people don't see them as political, because he is doing, especially what was at the time, the late 60s, early 70s, what was very much against the status quo. This is almost the cinematic equivalent of like, raging against the machine saying, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. John Waters is just making things on his own terms. And he's Mm -hmm. doing that here to an even bigger extent, I feel like, because this is undoubtedly a political satire. I mean, there's no denying that. It's not subtle at all. It's, it's It's very blatantly a political satire. It's very confrontational as a political satire. And the thing is, like, it's the political satire in this is still 
pretty relevant now. Uh, like if you watch it with modern eyes, obviously this is not anything that John Waters intended or knew, but you know, you've got Queen Carlotta, the villain, Edith Massey's character. She's feasting on marshmallows and pizza in her castle while her subjects live in cardboard shacks and eat rats if they are lucky enough to find them on the floor. Mm. Uh, she, she declares, uh, what is it she says? She says, every word that I utter is to be taken as a direct royal proclamation. Uh, she she likes to in, hurl insults at people uh, uh, who she sees as beneath her. Like, Queen Carlotta is sort of a modern po- politician. Like, she's fucking Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> like, she just likes to insult people for fun. Uh, and Mortville itself is very much like the picture of fascism, it, inclu- including, uh, you know, complete with a uniformed army of enforcers uh, with her, her leather daddy army that she's got hanging around her. I, I read an article about his camp that he did uh, or does camp John waters. And he also talks about the, uh, you were making me think of it with Queen Carlotta, the walk backwards thing. He describes yeah. in that article separately that he was like, Oh yeah. He's like, I remember summer camp. Well, for a lot of things, some of them that aren't PG, which we've discussed, but then he said, I also remember like one day we did, walk backwards day and you had to walk backwards everywhere we ate dinner for for breakfast and he was like for some reason in my mind it was the most surreal day of my life and so (laughs) that's he ended up using that here obviously well yeah and and basically what the way he's using it here is that queen carlotta who is in in a position of power is using that power just solely to entertain herself and for no other reason than to be cruel and to entertain herself like that that's what she's doing she is Declaring class warfare on everyone else in Mortville, basically. Uh, but in the end, you know, there is a happy ending. The citizens of Mortville revolt against the queen. And by the time the credits roll, Mortville is free and its uh, citizens are quite literally eating the rich. I mean, that's what he's doing at the end. So, like, this is a movie with a point of view. Uh, now, I, I do think that because it is, because of the, the way the movie's made because it is gross and it is dirty and filthy that people have a tendency to not see the satire as clearly some of John Waters later films, uh, especially starting probably with polyester and hairspray or the satire is a lot more clear, but I think people have a harder time seeing that in these early films because they're only focusing on the filthy stuff, you know, mm. but if you, if you look at this film as a story about revolution, it's as much a story about revolution as V for Vendetta is or about the matrix. It's about, the the uh, the people of this town who have been repressed uh, for their whole existence here rising up against the 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 rich people and throw and overthrowing them basically I mean, that that's what this about is about mm-hmm. uh, which actually I guess since I brought up V for Vendetta the Matrix any other you know movie about revolution that's maybe a good point to uh, to talk about further viewing because I think either one of those could make good choices for further viewing if you want to go thematically. So what do you guys have for further viewing for uh, for Desperate Living? I mean, seeing some of the things uh, in the set and some of the behavior that, you know, led to some of the narrative made me think of uh, one of the films from Cinema Shock's very first series from 1981, the cameo from legendary horror author Stephen King as Hoagie Man. Is that Night Riders? Night Riders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it made me think of Night Riders. I was like, all right, I can see like the leather daddies versus like the 
the Knight Riders. Like, I, okay, that's, that that would actually be kind of a cool movie, I think. <laughs> well, that's also a movie about class warfare, honestly. But uh, and, yeah, and it has yeah. this kind of imagined society uh, in it. You know, yeah. I, mean, exactly. I, I kind of see where I kind of see where you're coming from on that a little bit. Yeah, I I think I was just like still stuck in. Wow, what what else can you do besides other John Waters movies? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I just this one really feels like that. I was trying to think of something that even came close, and I don't think I ever really landed like that. Oh, I remember one thought I had was it's a shame Nicolas Cage never starred with John Waters. So, uh, some Nicolas Cage movie, <laughs> vampires, <laughs> a vampire's kiss. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I already mentioned V for Vendetta and the Matrix, which seemed like weird choices, but again, they are about kind of the the lower class rising up, especially V for Vendetta. But if you wanted mm-hmm. to go that route, you could also go Sm- Snowpiercer would be a, a, one that would fit Ooh. in with that theme, or even yeah. Spartacus, you know. I mean, Spartacus is about a slave revolt. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of stuff Jesus. you could go with if you go in that direction. What a jolt. To from John Waters to Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, Desperate Living might be the. I think, in my opinion, I think Desperate Living might be the most vile, like gross uh, movie that Waters has directed so far. I think this is a grosser movie than Pink Flamingos, uh, and I think it's partially because he's become a better filmmaker. So like he's better at portraying the gross things. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like mm. because because he still has the same vision, but his his technique has gotten better, and he's got more professional people working on the set. He's got a cinematographer, so it looks better. The sound is better. So it's a, it's an all around better made movie. So he's getting the grossness across a little bit better. So maybe that's what it is. But I also think that you know it it sounds like a paradox, but it's also his smartest and most mature because this is. Which is a weird thing to say about a movie like this to call it mature, but think about yeah. it. This is this is an I artist. Know, I don't know if you could hear my eye roll. <laughs> like, but all right. I mean, this is a, this is a guy who's challenging himself in numerous mm. ways. He he is trying to grow as an artist. Uh, you know, like like he's done on his other films, he's still celebrating weirdos and outcasts and oddballs, and he will do that for his entire career. But with with Desperate Living, he is expanding the scope of his storytelling you know like he he is trying to do something bigger and and make a bigger point uh and and for the first time i think he's blatantly got something to say while there's plenty of subtext that we've talked about on on his films before this especially on female trouble i think uh here he's not even trying to be subtle about it he's just leaning into the satire on this, Mm -hmm. which is going to be a major part of pretty much all of his films going forward so to me when i watch desperate living I see it as like, it's almost the first step in Waters' transition from a, a guy who's trying to shock you to a, a at least semi-mainstream American satirist because he really does become very good at satire as his career goes on. Uh, and I think this is kind of like his first attempt to really do that. Uh, that that he's And it's just something he's going to get better at as he goes on. So that's, that's why like Desperate Living feels like a movie that you really can only recommend to people who are John Waters fans. Like if you're not already a John Waters fan, this would be, this would be the last one that I would probably recommend. Uh, Mm. If you're like, Hey, I want to watch a John Waters movie. Where should I start? It's not going to be desperate living. 
certainly. It'd probably be female mm-hmm. trouble, honestly. That'd probably be the first one I'd show because hairspray, if you show them that one first and then they go back and watch Pink Flamingos, they're going to be mad. Like it, because they're gonna, their expectations are gonna be all out of whack. Uh, but you can't show. But I feel like your first one you show up, it's got to be like a divine movie, right? So, yeah. Female Trouble, I think, is the most palatable of those. And this one is just like an out outlier where it's like, hey, you like John Waters? Watch this one. But it is still a very important moment in his career. It's him, like I said, he's branching out, trying to do something different. It's also him proving that he doesn't have to have divine in a movie to make a movie. He, he doesn't have to lean on that, which uh, obviously he's made quite a few successful movies without divine later on, but this is also his first, you know, f- uh, he was forced to do it basically, but it is his first time trying to prove that, Hey, I'm not just the guy who makes divine movies. I am a filmmaker. And, you know, right. cause even the movies with divine, even though divine was the one becoming famous, it was all John Waters voice throughout those movies you know desperate living did not do very well financially uh it closed faster than anyone expected in the new york city theaters which discouraged other theater owners from around the country from booking it Uh, the film mostly played to waters regular crowds failing to break through beyond that and without divine it even struggled in those markets because again divine was the selling point to a lot of these movies more so than john waters was at this point uh, and to this day, Desperate Living seems to be the most obscure and least seen of Waters' early films. And as of this recording, it still doesn't even have a Blu-ray release. I had to get it on DVD, you know, uh, like an old DVD that I had to get. Or you can find it streaming, but it's never been released on Blu-ray. Uh, it, it's just a movie that people don't seem to have the same respect for as they do for some of Waters' other movies of this period. Mm-hmm. But there was a, you know, when you're reading about the trajectory of Waters' career, you see a funny thing happened during the marketing of Desperate Living. Uh, New Line, they started sending Waters out to do a lot of interviews to promote it. And as it turns out, he's a, he's really good at interviews. He's a very entertaining public speaker, which has turned into sort of a second career for him because, you know, if, if you followed him for the last two decades, uh, almost, I think 2004 was his last movie. So two decades as of next year, he has not directed a movie. Uh, he just does public speaking. He's basically a stand-up comic. It's kind of what he does. He just goes around and does public speaking tours, and he writes a bunch of books. Uh, and he's been very successful at that. And that's essentially how he has made a lot of his money. It's how he made a lot of his money even at this time. And Desperate Living was kind of where that turn in his career was made. He started, He he. this is around the time that he first went to Europe, you know, and he starts developing more expensive tastes. He stops dressing in thrift store clothing and starts dressing in silk shirts because he, uh, he he starts schmoozing with people in Baltimore that aren't just like the bar flies in Fells Point, but with like city council politicians. He starts helping the Baltimore Film Festival get going and curating that. Like this is when the, this is almost like the time of, uh, of his career when the sort of cult of John Waters, cult, not, not the John Waters movies, but that cult of personality around John Waters starts to exist. Know. That's yeah. when this starts happening. So like he, he is inching little by little towards the mainstream. But, you know, b- back at this time, 1977, he wasn't satisfied with just being an onstage personality. He had no plans to just only be a public speaker or even just a writer. He had a lot more movies in him. But he knew that if he wanted his career to really flourish, he was going to have to at least get one foot out of the gutter with his next film, uh, tentatively stepping a little bit closer towards the mainstream with a movie that that would be a little more palatable to 
uh, to general audiences. Uh, and he also knew that he needed his leading lady back. So with his next film, Waters would reteam with Divine for uh, what would be his most polished film so far. Uh, that film, it will be the subject of our next episode, is 1981's Polyester. Uh, well, that's any, anyway, that's all we have for today, folks. Fellas, you want to tell our listeners where you can be found on the internet? Well, I am at This Is Gary Horde on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host This Is Pro Wrestling at This Is Pro Wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW Show on Instagram. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance, and you can access all their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. And I'm still working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now uh, on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all of the socials at Computer Resume. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and D&D Beyond as long as they behave themselves. I'm curious about that very mysterious for now that you threw in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is this just I will because say the the writer strike and actor strike are going to mess up some, uh, strange new yeah. worlds and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> some changes. There are going to be some changes coming to the format. Um, I'm pretty so. sure we warned you about this when you started this show uh, two years ago. Yeah. That this would happen. I, I was like, Oh, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to, yeah, I'm going to be able to die, you know, shuck and jive around it and just, yeah, no. we're, we're going to have to just face it head on and, and make some changes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I am at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram, uh, Twitter, letterbox threads, whatever. Well, it's the same on all of them. Uh, I just joined blue sky. I haven't done anything on it yet, but I am on blue sky. Uh, so the show is at oh. cinema underscore shock on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, check out all of our episodes as well as the links to our discord channel and our merch at cinemashock.net. Uh, as always like rate review and share us with anyone, you know, in any way that you know how until next time. May the wings of Liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Why did you tell me to come this way, Johnny? You know I hate nature. Look at those disgusting trees stealing my oxygen. Oh, I can't stand this scenery another minute. All natural forests should be turned into housing developments. I want cement covering every blade of grass in this nation. Don't we taxpayers have the keys anymore? <laughs> wow. Wow, that one's a stretch. I do yeah, love that line I'm, of dialogue, though. It is I, a great line I of dialogue. I almost hurt myself reaching for that one. <laughs> <laughs>